This is Jocko Podcast number 320 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. So there's a a common set of metaphors that get thrown around a decent amount. Something along the lines of we as people, we're authors of our own book and we're the star of our own movie. You heard these things before? I have, yeah. And they, when you hear them, when I just said them, and even the way I said them, they seem kind of trite and they seem cliched, and I guess they are, but like many cliches, they are true in many ways. And there's an analogy in those statements with the idea of extreme ownership. Take, take ownership of your life. That's this similar to, hey, you write your own book. You get to create the plot is the, is the underlying theme, which means that you have control. And obviously, I like that idea. I like that, that attitude. And I agree with the idea of creating your own plot and writing your own book that you're in. But it doesn't quite correlate 100% because here's the thing. If you are truly writing your own script, then you actually have control over everything that's happening. You have 100% control over everything that you're writing. You're writing it. But in life, in real life, there are things that are beyond your control. In war, the enemy gets a vote. In life, life gets a vote. Life gets a vote. Bad things are going to happen, the things that you don't expect. Disease, accidents, misfortunes, mishaps, catastrophes. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who you are or what situation you are in, these things are going to impact your life at some point. No one gets out of life without these things happening. No one truly gets to write their own script. So the question is, what do you do with these things when they hit you? How do you face these challenges? How do you actually take ownership of your life? It is not an easy thing to do. But we are lucky enough today to have someone here that has taken ownership of his life and has dedicated his life to service. He served in the SEAL teams. Once he got out of the SEAL teams, created an incredibly successful business. He serves his family, serves his wife and his two daughters. He serves his faith. And now he is looking to serve his country again as a political leader. His name is Eli Crane, and he is here tonight to share his experiences and pass on some of those lessons learned that he got along the way. Eli Crane, thanks for coming down, man. Thanks for having me, Jocko. Appreciate long, it. Long drive out from Arizona. I know, about five and a half hours, but it was a good one, though. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, let's jump into this. So speaking of Arizona, let's start at the beginning. Let's start about your past and where you came from. Yeah, I actually um, was born in Tucson, Arizona. My dad was going to pharmacy school out there. Um, both my parents are from Iowa, and they moved out here um, to go to a good pharmacy school, and uh, there were a lot of pharmacy jobs in the West. So my dad went through pharmacy school, then moved us down to Yuma, Arizona, of all places. Dang. Yeah. And so was there a job or something down there? There was. And that's <laughs> okay. why that's why he did it. And it's cool because uh, I remember a lot of my a lot of my buddies in the platoon were always complaining about, you know, Iraq and the heat. And I was like, <laughs> this is like where I'm from, man. You know, <laughs> except Arabic street signs and maybe an extra dust storm here or there. This is like kind of like Yuma without the good Mexican food. But <laughs> but yeah, so grew up in uh, grew up in Yuma and, uh, you know, just. Uh, you know, loved playing sports, was a football player, uh, played a little bit of basketball and stuff like that. Wanted to be a pro football player, but then I realized, you know, I ran into reality <laughs> and realized that I didn't have didn't have the skills and uh, started looking at other options. Was your, so your dad was actually completed pharmacy school and he's a pharmacist? Yes, and, sir. And what about your mom? Was she doing the same thing or did she no, start raising the kids? Or? Yeah, she was, uh, she was raising the kids and she was also, she also did some part-time work at our church as a secretary, so. So you were spending time in church then when you were younger? Yeah, I did. How was, uh, how was the attention span in school and whatnot? It was a good student. It, no, I was a horrible student. <laughs> it was funny. I remember, you know, thank God, you know, Jocko, you talk about um, dynamic leadership sometimes or like, hey, what works for this individual doesn't work for that individual. But um, it, it was interesting because I remember my mom, thank God she, you know, tried to be dynamic in parenting me and my brothers because my, bro- my older brother and younger brother were good students. But me, on the other hand, not so much. Were you the you're the middle, right? I was the middle, and there were. I remember my mom coming home from a parent teacher conference, and she's like, "You know, Eli's in the classroom, but he's not really here." Mm-hmm. And like, I was always daydreaming. I was out at recess chasing butterflies, whatever I was doing. <laughs> but yeah, it didn't. And it was interesting because as I as I went down that pipeline, you know, um, I started to think. You know, people would tell me, like, especially my brothers, you know, you, you always razz your brothers, give each other a hard time. And my brothers, you know, I, I, I probably dished out more than I, than I received. But, um, you know, they would tell me that I was stupid because my grades were awful. And so you, you hear it, you hear something enough times, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. You start to internalize it. And, you know, you can easily make that a part of your identity. So um, I did. And, you know, I started to think I was stupid. And then as I got as I got further along in life and I started, you know, finding what I was passionate about, I realized that I wasn't stupid. I, I just, you know, needed to have that energy and my attention funneled in the right direction towards something that I really cared about. So you played football. Did you say football and what? You know, I played football, a little bit of basketball, but may, most of my focus was football. And you played all through high school? Yeah. How good were you? You know, I was decent, um, but I wasn't. I wasn't good enough to move on to college. I played. You know, I played quarterback. I loved. You know, playing quarterback. I loved the team dynamics of football. But uh, it was interesting, and, and you know, I gotta take extreme ownership of this. But <laughs> my my coach, we had like three slow white quarterbacks, and in high school, 
our coaches decided to switch us to an option, you know, running football team. So it was kind of like, you know, none of us were even really in a system that, you know, uh, really uh, highlighted our skills, our preferred mm-hmm. skill sets or what we were even good at. But um, and it, there was there was one guy that ended up starting over me. And uh, unfortunately, he was juicing at the time and i was like a scrawny like hundreds you know wasn't unfortunate for him apparently (laughs) right (laughs) he was like i was six one like 170 pounds just really really scrawny hadn't put on any weight yet and uh he had he could throw about 15 yards further than me and Mm -hmm. he he got he he started so it is what it is didn't get you know didn't didn't get the opportunity to really start once i got deeper i started all the way up to like my junior year and then you know i got benched and um, the bottom line is, you know, I wasn't good enough to make it happen. And I'm kind of looking back on it, hindsight being what it is, I'm kind of glad because I'm pretty, pretty thrilled about the route that I ended up going down. And then you, you, you stayed in Yuma. Is that where you went to high school? Yeah, that's where I went to high school, Cibola High School. And your parents were just continuing to work and yep. get you ready for life? Yep. Pretty much just raising me and my two brothers. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel pretty fortunate to grow up in the home that I did. You know, my parents loved us. They provided for us, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I realize a lot of, a lot of folks don't get that. So pretty grateful for that. And then were you planning to go to college? Was that part of your plan? Uh, yeah, I, I was planning to go to college, but I was hoping that I could go there and play football. Like that was my focus. That was my goal. And uh, and then I also wanted to be in the military at some point. And so the advice that I was getting was, hey, Eli, if you're going to go to college, you know, uh, or if you're going to go into the military, go through go through school, get your degree, become an officer, you know, and it, you'll get a lead man, the pay is better, et cetera. And you know that wasn't the path I ended up taking, but um, did you did you get better grades as you got older, or did I your, did did your brothers scar you to the point where you were just <laughs> not doing any schoolwork at all? No, my so when I got out of uh, when I got out of high school, I started working some like odd jobs, like construction. You know, at one point I was like a scorekeeper down at Parks and Rec. You know, for like <laughs> softball games and stuff like that. I was working at a restaurant as like a busboy. You know, definitely not on the on the path to this success. This is when you got out of high school. Yeah, when so I got, when you out, got of out of high school, school, did you didn't go right into college? I didn't. Okay, and then. Uh, and then I was kind of I was kind of lost, and it was right after my parents' divorce, and my parents' divorce was pretty tough, and so it kind of rocked my world. I was definitely you know a little bit rattled, so I was trying to figure. How old were you when your parents got divorced? I was seventeen, so um, you know, thankfully, like I said, I got my parents together for most of my you know upbringing, but it was it, it was a pretty brutal divorce, and so it just really rocked my world and. Um, I was, you know, took some time trying to figure out who the hell I was, what I was going to do. And, um, and then I started, I, I started going back to a community college called Arizona Western and I started studying criminology. And that's when I started getting good grades because I, I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And, you know, I was, I wasn't getting straight A's, but I think I had like a three, three, five average or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And how long did that last for? So I did that for about two years. I I think I was one credit away, like a elective away from getting my uh, 
my associate's degree, and then I applied to go to the University of Arizona. Unfortunately, when I got to the University of Arizona, they didn't have like a criminology degree. They had like a some criminal justice degree, but I'd have to go to the Eller Business School, and I didn't get into that one. You had to have really good grades to get into it. And, uh, and so I ended up being like, okay, I still want to finish my degree, still want to have the opportunity to become an officer if possible. And so I was like, okay, be, being the typical, you know, I was like, okay, what's, what path can I go that allows, allows me to do that? And so I s- looked at sociology, the study of society mm-hmm. and culture. And I started, uh, you know, uh, working on my major in that I switched my major at that point. Cause because they didn't have the criminology major. Were you thinking about the SEAL teams or were you just thinking about the military in general? Did you know? Yeah. So at that point I knew I wanted to be a SEAL. Um, even when I was back in Yuma before I came to Tucson, um, I was never a big partier or anything like that. And I remember, um, when I was, even when I was doing the odd jobs, one of my favorite things to do at night was to go to Barnes and Noble and just like, you know, really go through the military history section that they have there. And I would just read books on special forces, PJs, Rangers, Delta. And I was just fascinated by the special forces community. And I remember my dad gave me a piece of advice in high school. He said, Eli, the trick to being happy in your career is basically to pick something you would do for free. Don't, don't pick a career because of money. It won't make you happy. And, uh, and he told me if I could if I could go back and do it again, I wouldn't be a pharmacist. He said I could have gone and you know if I, you know been a forest ranger or something like that. I would I would do that. And so I took that advice on board, and I was like, oh man, I was reading the books, and I was like, jumping out of airplanes, blowing stuff up, you know, shooting, you know, being with you know being in a team environment, dude, I'd do that for free for sure. And so I started setting my mind on special forces. Is there something that particularly narrowed it down to SEAL teams? Yeah, because all the literature that I was almost almost all of it said that it was the toughest training in the Department of Defense. And I don't know, there was something about that that just appealed to me. Like I wanted to test myself and see if I could, um, if I had what it took to to make it through the toughest training in the world. And then I I loved the water, or I thought I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That 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 notion gets tested. Yeah, <laughs> that notion gets tested big time. How old were you when you were figuring all that out? Was that when you were already at the University of Arizona? Yeah. Um, so it was even when I was, you know, definitely thinking about it. Even when I was at Arizona Western, I was also thinking about would it be cool to be a Fed because I was studying criminology, um, you know, federal law enforcement or something like that. And then uh, as soon as I got to U of A. Um, you know, I started studying sociology, which I really, I was back in that. Uh, I really don't like this that much. Um, and I really, I could even see kind of the indoctrinization within academia at that point. And I was like, ah, I'm really not on board with a lot of this extracurricular stuff that they're putting out here and kind of the, the bent that a lot of academia has. Um, and so I started, I found a program in ROTC. I started, I realized, okay, there is an ROTC program here. There's a lot of military folks. Maybe I should go get um, hooked into that. And so I did, and I found that they had a Ranger Challenge program at U of A. And so I was like, oh, cool, man. I want to see if I can join and get into that. Maybe I could learn a little bit and, you know, network and just figure out, start, start working towards getting in the right type of shape. 
And so I, I started doing the Ranger Challenge program and, you know, we'd have to, you know, wake up, do early morning PTs and, you know, just get some exposure to that culture and to leaders within that culture. And so I started doing that and uh, that was helpful. So what year is this? So that would have been probably 2000. So were you in college yep. when September 11th came? I was. I was. Um, I was just starting my senior year at the U of A, and I was doing that Ranger Challenge program. You know, my grades were decent. I was a lifeguard at the U of A rec center, and um, and 9-11 happened. I just finished a Ranger Challenge workout early in the morning, got in my car, turned on the radio, and I was driving back to where I lived, and it was all over the radio, and I was like, damn. I was actually in an agricultural fraternity called Alpha Gamma Rho at the time. So I drove home and I was like, I woke up all the guys who were still asleep. And I was like, dude, you guys got to get out here and watch this. And so we all, we all got up, watched it. And everybody was just obviously stunned and surprised and pissed off at the same time. And so I remember um, wanting to join, you know, obviously I had, I wanted to join the military and I remember, you know, taking a couple of days to think about it, but I'm just like, I got to go, you know? And I remember calling my, my mom and my dad and telling them, Hey, look, I've decided I'm going to go join the military. I'm going to drop out of school and join the military. Cause I just really felt like, Hey, there's never going to be a time like this, you know, where the nation needs the next crop to step up and serve. And so, um, I actually dropped out that week, went and, you know, dropped out all my classes and then went down, started talking to the recruiter and playing those games with the recruiter. And then within probably, I think, seven or eight days, I was we were driving up to Phoenix so that I could get on a plane and fly to Great Lakes. And it was pretty quick. Dude, that's really quick. Yep. And was it like a SEAL contract? Was it what, Was it a SEAL contract? Yeah. Was it called Dive Fair? I don't that's think, what I did. I don't think that's it. what I did back in 1820. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it wasn't called that. I can't remember. I can't remember what it was called. But they did guarantee me the opportunity to do a screen test and try out. Yeah, which yeah. is if you think about that, is the shallowest guarantee you could ever get to sign your life away. Right. Hey, here you sign this piece of paper for six years in the Navy. And you will be guaranteed a chance to take a street screening test that might get you picked up for buds. Right. That's a slim offering. I know it. And you rogered up. I did. I did. And, uh, you know, I'm, I wouldn't looking back on it now. I don't think I would change it. Uh, even though I, I never have still to this day, never finished my degree, you know, for a couple different reasons. And, uh, but I think, this, I, I think it was the right thing to do. And I'm glad that, it, you know, there were a lot, there were thousands of Americans that did yep. the exact same thing. Yeah. Tim Kennedy was saying that same thing. He went down to the recruiter like September 12th or whatever. Yep. And he said the line was around the building and everything. So you showed up to boot camp. Yep. In Chicago. Yep. And was it, was it a shock to the system? Well, big time. <laughs> big time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who doesn't get a shock when you show up to boot camp. Even Navy boot camp, which is, yeah. you know, relatively mild, I guess, compared to, like, let's say the Marine Corps boot camp. But just the immediate loss of all your personal freedom right. and personal space, 
it's kind of a it's kind of a little bit of a shocker. Echo. I understand. <laughs> and what were you gonna be? So I uh, back then. I mean, obviously your goal is to be a seal, but you yeah, had to take yeah, a rate, right? Yep. What uh, gunner's mate was a seal source rate at the time. I think there were only five of them. So mm. I, I was like, gunner's mate. Yeah, cool. That sounds awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> so I chose gunner's mate, and uh, thankfully I chose a cool one because uh, I was going to spend some time in that rate. Ooh. Yeah. Did you take the screening test? I did. You passed it? Not the first time. Okay. The second time. Um, yeah, man. This you know this is something. Even before, how old are you at this point? I am twenty. I'm twenty-one years old. Okay. So um, I didn't pass my first one. I passed. I passed the second one. Like I was running in like steel. The you know yeah. back when you had to run the screen test in like steel-toed boots, boondockers. Boon yeah. <laughs> and I had gotten some what I would consider today probably some pretty bad gouge from a team guy um, that I talked to because I didn't know any seals, mm -hmm. and I, you know, but. My recruiter, he was like, hey, man, there's some SEALs out at YPG, Yuma Proving Ground here at jump school. We can go talk to him if you want. And I was like, yes, I'd love to go talk to him. So I remember going out. He drove me out there, and I talked to one, and uh, he was like, he was like, look, man, the only way you're going to know is if you if you have what it takes. It's just to show up and do it. He's like, can you pass the screen test? And I was like, yeah, I think I can. And so <laughs> that is, that is, that is yeah, the worst yeah, advice ever. So that's what I was rolling. I'm like, this guy's a Navy SEAL, dude. This is what he told me. So, um, and then, so I, you know, once I got to the level where, you know, I could do like, I could pass the screen test. I was like, okay, I'm good to go. Let's do it. And, uh, then when I got like, I was, but even when I ran the screen test on my own, I was never running it in steel toed boots mm -hmm. and pants. And I don't, and like a fool, when I did when I did the stuff, I didn't I didn't do it together, and that's a big deal. Though a lot of people don't we a lot yeah. of people don't. Yeah, dude, I can do forty two push ups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can do, I can do six pull ups. I can, I can do all, all these things individually. But you're not running them together, and when you start running them together with with the time mm -hmm. um, requirements in between, it'll gas you pretty quick. So the first time I ran it, man, I was dry heaving coming across the finish line and uh failed but i got a chance to go back and do it again the, the next time like i came in with like maybe a second left and uh they're like all right sweet you get your seal contract and i'm like yes and so um graduated from boot camp went to gunner's mate a school right there in great lakes and at that point they let us work out with some actual seals we got to do seal pt i think three times a week so i started doing that and it was kind of funny. I had I have hairy legs, and so there was this instructor. Had <laughs> you and Joe Biden, apparently. <laughs> right. Wow. Wow. You I, seen, I didn't realize you've seen that be, video, right? I have. Dude, I mean, is there a crazier like no. combination of randomness that you could put into a video besides that? Joe Biden and hairy legs, no. and the kids and the blonde hair and the, <laughs> the, the most insane thing. Yeah. So yeah. anyways, but, all right. Uh, so you got hairy legs. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the instructors, his name was instructor Hatter. He, he wouldn't even let me speak English. He made me speak in Wookiee. Like, <laughs> and I used to be real good at like doing the cheat, but it was like, <laughs> like he made me run around and like, you know, go report to so-and-so over there. And I would run up to him and I, he'd make me report like that. And it, he, they loved it, but whatever. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so did the seal PT thing, graduated, graduated gunner's mate, a school. And then, uh, 
went immediately to Bud's mm-hmm. and classed up with Bud's class 242. Did you get what you expected at Bud's? Oh, yeah, and more, <laughs> and, and more. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, really, it was really interesting because um, I actually made it through Hell Week on my first, on my first attempt. And, uh, you know, definitely not heroic, more like hanging on by the, you know, uh, hanging on. What were by you having thread. trouble with? I, I, so, buds. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I was, I was having trouble with buds. Um, so I, when I was born, I was born with some doctors say that I had asthma. Some said I had exercise induced bronchitis, whichever diagnosis is correct at the end of the day my lungs only function at about 60% and that, you know, of what they're supposed to. And that's after even like an albuterol hit or treatment. And so, you know, you can imagine, you know, if your lungs are only functioning at 60% and you've trained to the bare minimum, um, you're going to have a tough time. And so I I was having a really tough time. And so um, I made it and I, I walk around at about 225 pounds. I had, because my lungs don't, function at the level they're supposed to, I had to get down to 175 pounds just to pass the screen test, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a car, right? Mm -hmm. We can't put a bigger engine in this thing. You know, we can't do a lot to it. How, how do we make it? We start stripping weight out of it, throw the back seat, you know, like get rid of weight because this thing is only going to go as fast as it goes. And so, um, started really, you know, getting really thin, really thin. And that had that, this is while you were in buds. Or I, I had to get I had to get really thin before even going to buds just because you know was this while you were at GMA school yeah so while you're GMA school you're just dropping weight yep trying to get trying to get be yep. able to run faster yep and you show up at buds and you're hurting yeah and it wasn't honestly it wasn't just that it wasn't just that like I was immature as well um, you know I had uh, that's one thing that like I, when I talk to people about seal training and buds and the fact that they're trying to form you into a team guy. Um, when I first showed up, I was immature and I was like, I was looking out for number one. I was looking out for me. I was like, man, and it wasn't like I was a, like I was a jerk, but if, if I'm struggling, if, if I'm on the struggle bus over here and I haven't grown up and matured yet, I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta, I got to focus on myself. I'm not going to, I'm not going to volunteer for that two spot under the boat, man. I'm, I'm hurting. Right. And so after post hell week, I failed a evolution called life saving, which sometimes is a pass or fail. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's weed out evolution. And, uh, so life saving just for people to understand, this is where the students have to rescue the instructors who are allegedly drowning and they're actually not drowning they're actually just getting ready to kick your ass yep so and they have different levels the first one is kind of passive and then the it goes up those to the fifth level which is you're you're in a you're in a fight with another dude yep. in the water and you mentioned that it's pass fail but you also mentioned that there's a decent amount of subjectivity to it where if you have a guy that's coming through buds that maybe he's meeting the standards he might even be crushing the standards but he's not a good doesn't appear like he's going to be a good teammate doesn't it doesn't appear to be the kind of guy you'd want your platoon as an instructor yep they can weed that guy out yep at least that's the way it used to be yep and that 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 that's what it was and it's i'm glad I, you know, I look back on it. It's one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, 
you know, I got, I failed that event. They, they give you like in most evolutions of buzz, they'll give you like two or three chances to pass it. I failed it three times. So they sent me to an academic review board. When you were, when you were failing that, was that just like horrifying? I can only imagine that failing life-saving would be yeah. kind of like drowning. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, it was horrifying. Like I remember we had one instructor who was a very large man, very large man. I remember getting him back to the pool wall, pinning his hands on the side, and I was just smoked. And I got up on the pool deck, and I'm still holding his hands on the pool wall so that you know, he doesn't, cause he'll just, he'll yeah. just fall into the pool if you don't, if you don't pin him to the wall. And so I'm pin him to the wall. I get up, I get out of the pool deck and like, I'm supposed to like cro- cross his hands as I bring him up. You know, you know oh, what I'm yeah. talking so about? So he can like spin the so, other way. So he can spin with his back towards me and then I can put him, put him on my legs and slowly let him down. So if he was a real drowning victim, I'm not creating more trauma. And I remember I spun him the wrong way and his junk like landed right on the pool deck and I heard him go, Ugh. and this, he, he was as big as Jocko dude. And I'm like 170 pound bud student on my third try. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm done. And went to an academic review board. And uh, yeah, they were, I remember walking in and they were like, all right, young man, we're look, we've looked over your record. And this is post hell week. This is post hell week. Me, yeah, me and my roommate were both stand. I think we both got re- boarded that day with one other guy. And um, they were like, look, you're obviously tough. You made it through Hell Week, but we need the best of the best here. And you're not meeting up to that standard. They were like, you failed to run. You failed to swim. You failed to no course. And here was, here was the big here was the big one. And you're, at, you're ranked in the bottom 25% of your class. Because in SEAL training, even even back then, we were doing pure evals. Okay. And so that's a that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, we're going to recommend that you come back in a year. And I was like, okay. And so, you know, that was a tough, tough blow for me because they actually ended up keeping my roommate who had basically the same stats that I had was ranked the same, the same way. So that Why'd was, they keep him? Do you know? Honestly, I don't know. But um, they, they didn't tell me, but he actually made it all the way to third phase couldn't pass his final swim and he got he got booted and he was a he was a little dude Mm -hmm. as well but i felt really bad for him because he never went back when you were going through hell week what were you solid in hell week in terms of mentally you know i would say i wouldn't say solid i would say my mentality was hanging on for dear life and i think that was you know the difference between my first hell week and my second hell week if i'm so if you I'm say being, hanging on for dear life you mean you're sitting in the water on tuesday night and you're like like can we get a little bit further and you just did that the whole time basically yeah so the interesting thing is is that i never thought about quitting mm-hmm. however i remember we broke out sunday night and then Monday night, I remember standing in line with, you know, the, the class, you know, where they're coming around with flashlights looking at you. And I'm thinking to myself, I've never been this cold. I've never been this wet, never been this tired. And this Exhaust- was Sunday this night? Is, this is, no, tw- Monday night. This okay, is 24 Monday, hours yeah. in, and I've still got another four and a half days of this. No, And I'm starting to think to myself, there's no way. And what I was trying to do is I was trying to eat that elephant, in, you know, in one bite. And I mean, that's, I think that's 
probably the thing that gets most guys in 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 training is that like when you've got a five and a half day block like that and you try and eat it in one bite, it's just mentally overwhelming. You know, but if you if you're able to break it up into I'm not even going to worry about Friday afternoon, I'm just going to focus on I know I get to eat chow in two hours. I'm just going to I'm going to make it to chow. And if it gets tougher than that, I'm just going to make it through this race. And if it gets tougher than that, I'm just going to put my right foot in front of my left foot in front of my and you just break those goals down. And that that was something that you you think you're decent at doing until you get into the eye of that storm. And you're like, that was a big difference between hell week one and hell week two for me. Mm-hmm. But I, I bottom line is extreme ownership. <laughs> I got what I deserved and it ended up being a blessing. How were you not? Just super freaking angry when you got dropped. I was. I was. I remember, you know, you probably know uh, Dan Tabor. Mm-hmm. So I remember talking to instructor Tabor at the time. He was he was there in my board. He was the proctor of my class. And, you know, he pulled me aside. And it was really cool because he didn't have to do this. But he was just really encouraging. He was like, hey, don't, don't let this. He said something to the effect of don't let this be the end. Come back. Do it you can make it. And he's like, and and he's like, and don't, basically he's like, um, don't feel bad about this. Just make it right. And that was really cool coming from a guy like that who at that point in my life, I didn't even know if, you know, he, you know, cared about, because you know, the persona that Bud's instructors put on, but it was just really cool. It was like a, it was like an older dude who'd been there, done that seal chief and just a mentorship moment. And that, that was really cool that he did that. So then it's trick-or-treat to the fleet. Yep. Give me something good to sweep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where'd you get stationed? So the the detailer gave me, hey, your options are you can go to Japan or you can go to Virginia or you can go to Jacksonville, Florida. And so Japan sounded kind of cool, but I was worried that if I went there, it'd be harder to get back. And so, and I really didn't want to go to Virginia because I heard a lot of bad things about being in the fleet there. It's a lot colder. I was like, Florida's kind of nice. <laughs> I mean, Ron DeSantis wasn't there at the time, but <laughs> I, I'd still heard good things. And so I was like, uh, yeah, I'll go to Florida. I'll go to Mayport. And uh, I remember, Jocko, I drove I drove across country and uh, showed up there and I looked at that ship and I was like, and I knew I was going to be sleeping on that ship for the next at least couple year or so. I actually slept in my car, man. I was like, oh, my God, dude, this is going to suck. And it did. It sucked. What are you, an E3 at this point? Yeah. So you check on board your ship. Did you get scullery duty out of the gate? Like Like Mestex? Yeah. No, I didn't. Um, Matter of fact, I got hooked up on that that regard. I never went crank. We call it cranking. Yeah, mess cranking. Yeah, that's right. Mess cranking. And uh, my my rotation didn't come up for probably a – till I'd been on the ship like a year or so. And instead of going cranking, I went and did something called the HAB team. And we were just rehabilitating spaces. It was the easiest mm-hmm. duty I'd ever had <laughs> on a ship. I worked for the, I worked for a, the post office clerk and uh, like they would just pick a space or two every week and we would just go in, we would tape off the space, we would tape off everything that couldn't get painted and we would just paint it. And other than that, like that's all we had to do. And they pulled me out of my division. So I didn't have to do any of the divisional work. I wasn't standing watches. And it was like the, it was like the easiest duty I ever did. And all my buddies that were, you know, in, in, uh, the gunner's mate division were so pissed off at me. They couldn't believe that I was getting a good deal. So we had this little gym on board. It was probably the size of this room. 
no kidding, maybe a little bit bigger. What, what ship was it? It was the USS Gettysburg. Okay. It was an Aegis missile cruiser, Check. CG-64. And um, there were f- over f- like 450 people on this ship, Echo. So there were two gyms about this size. Ten, 450, ten by ten rooms, basically. 450, and, and they would close it down if like the ship was rolling too much. Mm-hmm. And so it was like it, you would show up hoping to get a workout in two treadmills. And then, you know, they were almost always busy. Mm-hmm. And you, you, the food you're eating is garbage Mm -hmm. you know and so it was like not only that but you would typically underway you would work your regular day like let's just say you know uh six in the morning to five in the afternoon and then every single night you would have to stand to watch you would either have the eight to midnight or the balls to four as we called it Mm -hmm. or the four to eight and so your sleep was always interrupted you were always getting treated like crap in the in the fleet and um but it Again, it was good for me. It's what I needed to grow up. And even in those circumstances, I said that I was immature when I went through Buds the first time. And I still think I'm a little immature now. Yes, sir. But it, it's a progression. Um, and uh, But it was cool because I started, I started looking back on, okay, what did I do wrong? How do I make this? How do I make this right? How do I improve while I'm out here? And even in those circumstances, I think – I wasn't under a boat anymore running with that heavy boat or, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't step up for my buddies in that circumstance, but there were times where we were all tired. Nobody wanted to take the watch or nobody wanted to take the trash out or nobody wanted to do this. And there were times where I could practice, you know, taking it, you know, taking one for the team. And that's, that was part of what I needed to do and just learn how to be that guy, you know, when, um, when the team needed you and so and gr- just grow up a little bit but so uh, so how long did you spend on that ship two and a half years did you do one deployment or two deployments two Oof. um they said the seal instructors and, and the recommendation on on my exit eval or whatever it's called was he like we recommend he comes back in a year but the ceo of a ship mm-hmm. won't get a replacement yeah. if they if they let you go to a special program so that they were like no it's just we're, not happening. we're you're staying here we can't be undermanned and so at what point did you commit to like i'm going back to buds i'm going to make it so this is an interesting story and it it, it talks about it, you know it's all about taking taking risk at times because jocko when when my orders came through to go to Buds, I still had a year left on my con- my current contract. So I could have gone to Buds, either passed or failed, and then, you know, whatever. Yep. Or if I failed, I could just get out. Yep. The Navy was like, nope. <laughs> We're, you're going to reenlist for another four years if you want those orders. They dropped that on me the day that I was scheduled to leave the ship. I was so pissed. And I was just like... I can't believe it because I'm face. I'm staring down the barrel because I. Are I you, knew, so are you at the four year mark now? I was at the three year mark. Okay. Oh, so your first enlistment was like three years because you didn't get through buds. Well, it was. I had a four year enlistment, but when my orders came through, I was at my three year mark. Got it. Got it. So I had enough time on my contract where even if I went to buds, failed out, yeah, I could just, just get out. I'm out. Clean, clean escape. Don't have to come back to the fleet. But the Navy's like, nope. You're signing a four. They they knew. They know that how much of leverage they have on kids that want to go back to SEAL training or do SEAL training or special program or whatever. And so, like, I remember calling some mentors in my life. I was like, hey, man, this is what I'm staring at. What do you think? And uh, I also, I, I was just praying. I was like, Lord, this is the only thing 
this is the only thing on my heart. And I was even praying while I was underway on the Gettysburg. I was like, Lord, if this is not what you want me to do, please take it from me. Cause I don't, I, I want to walk in your favor. I want to, I want to be the man you want me to be. And I want to do what you want me to do, but this is the only thing on my heart. And so if it's not what you want me to do, please like path me out of here, you know, you know, you know, send me down the path, whatever path you want me to go down because I'm a knucklehead. And if, if you don't help me and guide me and direct me in this, I'm going to probably make a bad decision. And so, um, but yeah, it was still, it was still, the fire still burned, you know, to go back, even knowing that if I didn't make it, I was going to be right back in the fleet. So that's one of the hard things about the Navy, all, all you young men that listen to this show, you know, is it, at least in the Marines or in the army, man, it's like, if you don't make it through a program, you can go being a conventional unit and fight, bro. You're going to be fighting some uh, rust and some <laughs> dust in the Navy, bro. <laughs> Polishing some brass sweeper sweepers, man, man, your broom, dude. Uh, it's bad. And it must've been super hard to prepare now since you're on a ship underway, two deployments in two years, you're eating food that sucks for your health. Chili dogs, baby. <sighs> Chili dogs. How did you stay in shape or how did you get in shape? Um, once I got, once I knew that my orders, I, once I submitted my package, I went right back to, Hey, I got to drop a bunch of weight. I'd gotten a little bit stronger, put on a little bit more muscle. Um, but I started dropping the weight again so that, you know, I could keep, keep up on the runs and whatnot. Sometimes they'd let us run around the ship. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes they wouldn't, but you know, I just did anytime I got the opportunity to work out, I did. And, uh, you know, I was hoping that the, uh, increased maturity mm -hmm. was really going to help me out a lot, but you know, I just worked out whenever I can. And I, I definitely don't feel like I was ready just because of what I came out of, but I was more ready mentally to, you know, go back. And I think that was where my biggest, where my biggest issue was. And so you get back to buds easier this time, or maybe not easier, but you were you were more mentally prepared. Yeah, it was it was easier in the fact that I was mentally prepared, and I knew you know I'd seen a lot of the movie already. Um, the difference was is that when I got back the second time, right off the bat, I got pneumonia, and so I failed. So I already have horrible lungs. And now I've got pneumonia, like just ravaging them. And so I failed my first two runs. And like, so they were like, look, if you fail one more run, you're done. We're, we're dropping you. And I hadn't even got back to hell week. So I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, dude, I'm not even going to get back to where I was, where, where I made it to the first time. And so thank God I uh, passed my third run and uh, got an opportunity going to hell week. And so... Thankfully, you know, I made it, you know, past that run, made it through Hell Week, and then, but I was on the bubble the entire rest of SEAL training for runs. <laughs> yeah, and I was a horrible runner. Was Every it? time, like, came in, like, may, you know, four, three, two, you know, one Eli second. passes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, was Hell Week, was it, was it better going through the first time when you didn't really know what to expect? or the second time where you did know what to expect? Which one was better? Which one was worse? For me, the second one was much better just because um, I think that there's a lot of, you know, fear and anxiety going into something like that that you know has taken out so many men better than you or 
perceivably better than you and stronger than you and faster than you. And you, you can't argue with the data. I mean, so many guys don't make it through that. Um, and so I, I knew I could make it through it. I, and I also knew there was a part of me that was like, I'd, I'd only stayed awake for maybe 48 hours before going into hell week the first time, maybe probably not even that long, probably like 30, something like that. And so there's a part of you that's like, if you've never done something, okay, how am I going to stay awake? How's the body even do that? Stay awake from five and a half days and just get destroyed the entire time. And so there's always that part of you that's like, okay, I know they can't kill me, but this just doesn't make a lot of sense. At the end of the day, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. What would, what would things look like if, if I didn't sleep for five, five and a half days, what, how would I function? How? So the fact that I'd already done it and gone mm-hmm. through it, I was like, I know I can do this. I know that, you know, one of the things that I like to tell people, this is how it felt for me was, you know how echo, you always get like a, even today, you'll probably get a second wind. You'll feel tired and then you'll get a second wind. Yeah, okay. That's how I felt. I felt like every time, like, you know, five, six, seven hours into, you know, into it, my, I'd get tired. I'd just wait an hour and then my, I'd get a second wind and I'd be right back in it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cool that your body works that way. But, um, they also said that your body will stop like shutting, it'll start shutting down, uh, functions that aren't necessary to survival, like growing fingernails or facial hair. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that's what they told us. So. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and then that's it. I mean, you, you, you make it through buds the second time, even though you're on the bubble the entire time for runs, Yep. but you make it through. Mm-hmm. I make it through. And then, um, I'm told I get orders to SEAL Team 3. Most of my class got orders to the East Coast. There were only six of us that stayed on the West Coast. Check. I was one of the fortunate ones. So you, you get through it, you graduate, and where'd you get orders to? Uh, SEAL Team 3. And did, that, did most of your class get West Coast, East Coast, even split? How'd they, how'd they do that? So only six of us stayed on the West Coast. Everybody else went to the East Coast. Dang. So I, was, I felt lucky. Dang. And where was Team Three at the time? What was going on? Team Three was already deployed at the time. You got oh, it was this, you was, guys. this was 06. this was Ramadi oh six yeah. Check. So what they told us, Jocko, is it all right? Team Three is deployed. You guys are just going to stay here and go to schools. And so it was interesting because I had just married my wife in between buds and SQT, and so I'm like, this is awesome, babe. I'm just going to, you know, hang out at the team and like maybe, you know, sweep for a little bit and like go to a school every once in a while. We can start our life together. So why don't you move out? She had just graduated from University of Arizona. Like, why don't you move out and we can start our marriage together? Did you run that plan through the U.S. Navy? No. no. (laughs) (laughs) But Chaco, the chief in charge of us was like, no, you guys are good to go. You're not deploying. We've, you know, we've talked it through, blah, blah, blah. And so she moves out. Um, and we move into this little apartment here in Point Loma and, uh, and then two weeks later, they're like, Hey, uh, change of plans. You're deploying, uh, as soon as you're, you're going to go through SEER school and then you're going to deploy. And so I don't remember what, ha- what it was that happened, but four of the guys went through SEER school the week before I did, and then they deployed. And so I went through SEER school by myself and then deployed like flew over by myself on a like a civilian airplane and i'm just like oh my dude i was so stressed out first time going to war don't know any of the guys at seal team three but my instructors have told us hey listen you guys when you get there 
Keep your mouth shut. Do what you're told. You're about to swim with some great white sharks. That's that's basically the, the advice. And so I don't know anybody. I'm flying to war by myself. I don't even have any guns. And it's just like you don't know. I had nothing to compare to. I I'd, I'd, I'd been – I'd been on a ship before, but I'm flying into a war zone with no guns. Like, I don't know what's going to – is the plane going to land? And, like, I'm going to have to PLF out of the plane because there's, like, <laughs> people shooting at us. Like, I have no idea or no context for what that's going to look like. And then I'm going to have to, like, integrate into this platoon of guys that already did a workup together. And so, anyway, we were, what, 30 minutes down the road from you guys in Bravo platoon. I think there were – four or five of us, four of us that went to Bravo platoon. And so we started immediately, you know, doing the new guy job, you know, making sure the Hummers are gassed up, making sure they're clean, making sure the windows have all the moon dust wiped off them, making sure the two forties and the fifties are clean, oiled up, ready for the op. And then it was cool because they threw us in to turret gunning immediately. And I was like, this is fantastic, man. Cause all of our buddies, you know, are doing whatever they're doing on the East Coast, and we're already getting to go on ops with these guys. Yeah, that's freaking awesome. And the culture was, and that platoon was really cool in that um, the rule was this, we're not messing with you unless we need to. And then if we need to, we're going to tighten you up. And, you know, but it it was just like as long as you you walk around on eggshells, do the new guy thing, (laughs) you know, we'll, we'll leave you alone. But you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna do all the crappy jobs that nobody wants to do. You're gonna do it standing tall with respect. And you know I was totally, totally all about that. Things changed a little bit once I came into <laughs> Bruiser, the very next pump. But. I'm trying to think of uh, how many guys came to Task Unit Bruiser in Ramadi. You guys got you guys got Sal DeFranco. I know we got Sal and another dude named Sean. Okay. Sean H. Yeah. Um, Sal was he he was he's such a nice guy and he had and he smiled all the time. <laughs> this is the this is the this is the invention of normal face. Mm. So I had this thing I'd do with Sal where I had taken the the cardboard like innard from the spools of paper that we would print maps on. Yeah. And I'd sit there and I'd be like, All right, Sal, listen up, bro. You can't be you're you're like supposed to be a seal now. You can't be having this big smile on your face. You look like a dork. We, we don't look like dorks. And of course, this is all like hilarious. So he's smiling even more. And I'm like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. You can't smile. If you smile, I'm going to whack you in the head with this thing. And, you know, so then I'd say, I go, ready? And he'd be like, yes, sir. And I'd go, go. And he couldn't He couldn't keep like a, a normal face for a half a second. I'd have to whack him in the head. But right. he was a freaking good guy, funny, and, and just had a good attitude. But he just smiled a lot. And, yeah. of course, whatever you're going to do, if you don't smile, you're going to get beat for not smiling. If you smile too much, you're going to get beat for smiling too much so you're, you're gonna get beat yes. i mean that's basically what the whole concept was when you rolled out but when we when we get to when we get to it remind me to tell you a funny sal defranco story <laughs> that involved you in, in skits okay Jack. <laughs> they made us do skits it was hilarious <laughs> that must have been good yeah. uh so so you ended up i mean that's still even for sal for you for you guys to roll on out on a deployment, you haven't even done a work before you guys get to go out. You guys get to do some ops, get some experience, yep. get to know what it's like to uh, drive down the road in the middle of the night waiting to get blowed up. Yeah. Which is which is fun. Then 
then what? So then, then the deployment's over. Yeah, then the deployment's over, and I flew back on the on the last bird, um, and uh, and I so if, what, what, I wonder if we were on the same bird. I if it was the last so. bird, we were on the last bird. I don't so. think so. I was relaxed, so he wasn't there. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I get I get back, and it's it's weird because. Um, all the guys had already been back. They were already like selecting the new platoons. I was on the last bird, so I get in late. And then uh, I remember, you know, getting back. Me and my wife, we 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 schedule our first like date night. Like we're gonna finally get to go out and celebrate. Hey, hanging out, made it back, all that. And so I'm, we're, she's getting ready. I'm already ready to go. Like you know, that that goes uh, <laughs> out on date night. And I get a call from one of our my other new guy buddies that just came back with me but he came back i think before me and he's like hey you need to get down to danny's right now and i'm like what and he's like yeah bro we're we're in delta platoon now get down here right now and i'm like no dude i'm we're go, I'm, I'm off dude we're going to, he's like eli i'm not asking you i'm telling you get your ass down to danny's now so i gotta go tell my wife yeah. like hey there's gonna be no date night <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but apparent it sounds serious. Yes. So, so I'm rolling down. World, to, World War Three is apparently broken out. Yeah. There's a situation. It happens to be at a bar in Coronado. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I jump in my little green Honda Civic and I drive over the bridge as fast as I can without, you know, getting arrested. And he's like, he's like, just when you get to Danny's, come out behind the bar. And I'm like, oh, this sounds fantastic. He's like, yeah, we're in Delta Platoon. Chris Kyle's our LPO. And I'm like, awesome. And so I get there, I walk through the bar, all the new guys that I just like graduated, you know, SQT with, some of which went downrange, some of which didn't, are now standing at attention in lines behind Danny, <laughs> just getting screamed at. And I'm like, holy, holy cow, dude. So yeah, that, that was, and so that night, you know, we were, you know, it was the in dock in the TU Bruiser, yeah. right? And so... This guy, this guy, you know, he he wasn't there, but uh, um, it was just, yeah, it was it was interesting because the culture had completely shifted to, hey man, totally new new group of dudes, new rules, and uh, yeah, I I realized real quick that this was gonna be a interesting two years, and you better be locked on. Mm. Like, we would come in, like, we would come into rooms like the new guys, like, back-to-back, like, fire hands <laughs> ready to go, because <laughs> you you didn't know what was, you didn't know what you were gonna be, get hit with, but they definitely they definitely loved uh, having new guys around, I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, I guess that answers my question. I was gonna ask you if you got treated like a new guy since you kind of, would like, had a little bit of a deployment. I guess the answer is a solid yes. Oh, yeah. They were like, <laughs> In yeah, fact, like a little bit worse because they're like, you lucky bastard. Yeah. You got to go over there and you didn't even do a workup. That was the thing. They're like, hey, that didn't count. <laughs> You're doing a full workup. You will be a new guy for a, a full two years. And it was like, roger that. And, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? So it's all good. <laughs> did you, uh, we, what what position did you get in the platoon? Were you A-dub? A-dub, turret gunner. Yep. And it was it was cool, but I, I like to talk about my failures because I think that's where the gold often is. Um, Chris actually sat down with each and every one of us with his like little green notebook, and he's like, all right, tell me, what, what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to become a sniper. And so um, he actually, 
you know, and I think there were a couple other, but that was other guys that wanted to go to sniper school, but that was my number one thing. And so he actually sent me to sniper school, my first as a new guy. Damn. Yeah. And I failed. Oh, I know, man. I made it through pick and then scout. And then I didn't qualify um, expert on the, the M4, the 200 yard qual that you have to do before you actually get to go to sniper school. And so I was, that was hard walking. Can you, you, you can imagine coming back and telling Chris, Hey, I just blew that. And so they didn't get an extra billet because I, I failed. So Chris wasn't happy about that. It definitely went in the book of woe. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, paid, paid for that pretty dearly, but you know, I mean, it, you know, it is what it is. It wasn't like I was, wasn't trying. Yeah. The, people i guess it's hard it's hard to see from the public persona that got put out of chris of like how funny he was and how like shit talking he was and just like and the other thing that sounds crazy is the the prank like he liked to do like pranks on people like a little kid you know he he did (laughs) that was when people ask me all the time they're like so what do you think of that movie and i was like hey you know the movie's you know it's decent whatever but i was like the number one thing that they screwed up was like that they missed like how funny he was and his sense of humor and how he was always doing something shady (laughs) always doing something shady so but but i guess i don't maybe it wouldn't maybe hollywood didn't think it'd be as cool of a movie as if you know they portrayed him that way yeah i guess they would have had to make it into a a, a, like a mini series or something where they could where they could develop the character develop his personality so you could see all sides which would have made it more impactful because then you'd see, hey, this guy that is very funny, loves his family, and likes to clown around, also can be totally serious and and has has the most serious job. But, you know, they gotta take all that stuff, and like you said, they gotta make it into a movie that's an hour and a half long, and that's that's what they did. Yeah, they took like 15, 20 years of his life and condensed it into an hour and a half, so I mean, you know, that that can't be easy to do. Yeah. how was that workup? Good. So I was, I was, I was running your workup. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. By the way, <laughs> my God, dude, unbelievable. Did you carry any wounded guys anymore? Uh, yeah, we actually, <laughs> dude. It was so crazy. Like, um, you know, and it was cool to see you because you'd come out all the time, and uh, um, I can't remember which ones, which years you were even out for, but it was. I do remember doing like you know, seven click insert in, you know, you know, hit, hit the target. And then on the way exfil, this guy would put half of our guys down at least. So I Actually, mean, I wouldn't, you guys would, you guys would get tore up by okay. their op four. And, All right. Hey man, I think there might've been, I a wanted little, you to win, bro. I wanted you to I win. I think there might've been a little bit of a suggestion from this guy to make it as hard as humanly possible just by reading some of his stuff. And, but I, you know, it was interesting because, like, you would, you know, you do your op, you do your mission, and then, like, you've got another, you know, click or two to exfil out and, you know, trade it's putting down over half of your guys. And so, you know, you're, it, it's already, you've already got your body armor on, you've got like a machine gun, you've already got like, you know, you're loaded for bear, and now you've got to carry, you know, another 250 maybe even depending on his size we had some beasts in my platoon so you know maybe another 300 pound dude and it was just like brutal i remember 
remember one time I was getting ready to pick up a down seal, and it was Chief D. And uh, he's a big, muscular dude, the type of guy that was you did not want to piss off. Let's and also let's say like he's not going to be super light. <laughs> he is not super light. Yeah, he's he, he's really heavy, and so. I, and I he's had, a freaking stud. He like is. you just want to be like everyone just wants to like do good, especially his guys. Yeah. You know they want to they want to kick ass for him. And so I had my guns on my back, but I didn't like have it re- retention or anything. Oh. So I went down to like grab his upper torso, and my gun comes over top and hits him on the head. <laughs> and I was he was like. Oh my God! Who did that? <laughs> Thank God it was nighttime, <laughs> and you couldn't see who did it. And I got it, Jocko. I didn't take extreme ownership <laughs> because he would have killed me. And I just like, I just we we got him up, and we you know we started moving him. But um, extreme ownership might have cost me my life right there. So yeah, we didn't. I didn't tell Chief D that it was me that didn't sling my gun and just smacked him in the face. But yeah, it it, it would. I, th- I think the good thing about the way that you ran training was that there was nothing that I ever faced that was even close to the, the training. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that was I wasn't point. always happy with you about it. <laughs> I remember one time you were out at, I think you were out at uh, San Clemente or something. And instead of like, okay, we, we do the day runs, we do the night runs, we go to sleep. There was, you didn't let us go to sleep. It was just like, okay, TST, here we go. We're, we're going back in the town. We got to go hit this. And I'm like, oh, God, dude. Well, I always thought of like day runs, night runs, morning runs, <laughs> yeah. mid-afternoon runs, yep. you know, brunch <laughs> runs. How's that sound? We'll get a little right. bit of that. Right. And Stoner was your TU commander? Yeah, he was, uh, he was the TU commander there from 06 to 08, mm-hmm. right after you left. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And that's when he got. That's when he got hurt. Yep, he broke his neck. Uh, yeah, that happened. Luckily, he didn't break his spine. He just broke vertebrae in his neck when a dude fell off. Fell off. One of the other new guys. Yep. Fell off of the shipboarding and landed on top of him, broke his neck. I remember I'm. I was at obviously I was at trade at and I get the call like, hey, we got an injury. And yep. I'm like, all right, Roger. And then I got like a text from someone's like, hey, it's Stoner. And I was like, check. Went up to the hospital, but thank God he uh, he didn't break his spinal cord, so he was able to yeah. put on a neck brace, kind of walk through the rest of until that was healed up and and still able to go on deployment because he wasn't going to stay home. I mean, come no, on, no. Well, that brings up another funny story because uh, remember, uh, I don't know if this guy's still in. Anyway, our LT. During that period, Texan guy Jimmy, mm-hmm. yep, he uh, he made us roll. He made us do jujitsu mm-hmm. three times a week, <laughs> yeah. right? He's, you know, all of them, you know, following <laughs> following this guy's footstep, and it, and so we would we would roll. We do jujitsu before um, before the day started, and uh, I remember one time I got somebody I can't remember who it was, another LT in a triangle choke. And I, I was tying it in good, and he, he picked me up, stacked me, and dropped me on my neck. And I heard something go pop, pop. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, you know, and we did a quick timeout, and I was like, okay, I can still move it. And then we, f- we finished the day. I'm okay. Like, we finished the rolling. I feel okay. And then is take a shower, and then it starts getting real, real tight and real stiff. And I, I'm like, man, I don't, this, is, this doesn't feel right. Maybe I should go say something. So 
I made a mistake and I went and said something and I told Chris, I was like, Hey, I did something while I was rolling. I heard some pops in my neck and, uh, it's starting to get really, really tight. And he's like, okay, go over to medical. So medical made, um, called an Ambu who came to the, to this, you know, three picked mm-hmm. me up, put like, put me on like a bed or whatever, Damn. S- took me to Balboa, did x-rays or whatever. And they're like, you know, they're like, oh, you're good. You're good to go. So they, they brought me back, and uh, but they made me put a neck brace on. And so I walk in to see Chris, and uh, and I'd taken the neck brace off. And he's like, so uh, what, what happened? And I'm like, I'm good to go. They did x-rays. He's like, did they give you anything? And I'm like, well, this neck brace, but, you know, I don't need it. I'm good. And he's like, no, <laughs> put the neck brace on. So Chris had the guys paint it pink and then made me wear the neck brace for like the next week. And I was like, even when we like, cause we were just getting ready to go to Pendleton. And so he made me wear it out in town. He made me wear it everywhere. And I was just like, oh man, dude, I'm never saying anything ever again. But, like I said, you like to have some fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so, so how was that deployment? Um, it was, you know, it was, I think it was good. I know a lot of guys weren't happy about it, but, um, we started on the Syrian border in Al Qaim. Mm-hmm. We turned over with an SF unit and the deployment started out by, with our primary focus, trying to stop, um, foreign fighters and equipment and, you know, all sorts of money and stuff flowing in from Syria mm-hmm. into Iraq. And so we did a lot of des- desert patrols. Um, and you know, that it's not, I don't think it's what team guys really love doing, mm-hmm. but it, you know, it is what it is. And then probably, and we asked, we actually spent a lot of uh, the first month and a half building up a structure to live in. So we called ourselves seal bees. <laughs> like we had two CBs that were like constantly telling us what to do, how to build this structure. And so we built that. And then after we got that finished, um, that's when, I think the army called and said, "Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna t- cordon off Sadr City, mm-hmm. and we need some SEAL snipers and some guys to come in and help us do that because uh, Al Sadr's militia was killing the Iraqi contractors that were building the wall." And so that's when Stoner and Chris and several other guys, some were RG thirty three techs, some some were comms guys, and many of them were snipers. Um, from SEAL Team 8, and then from SEAL Team 3, they formed, like, this super troop, mm-hmm. um, which Stoner was in charge of. And uh, so they, they went and left us. I think four of them went from our platoon, and then the rest of us stayed back, and we just went all over, you know, went all over the country. We flew some Humvees up to Missoula, and then uh, towards the end of deployment, Chris came back, and I actually got to go and you know be a part of that for like mm-hmm. a, the last month and a half or something like that but it it was a you know it was a decent platoon but we were all over yeah. i mean instead of operating out of one place we spent time in al-assad we spent time in i think hit haditha Ra- we we even we even built a new base in rawa when al-qaim got shut down so we were just like transient all over the place yeah yeah that there's it, it always sucks when you're not like with your whole platoon it's also there's cool things about traveling all over the place that my first deployment to Iraq we we lived in Baghdad the whole time but we would go out to all over the country so that was kind of 
you know, you just get to see different areas and we'd stay for a day here or two days here, some random like SF outstation in the middle of nowhere and hang out with them, do do whatever we can to support and then come back. So that that's kind of cool. And then my second deployment to Iraq, I didn't leave Ramadi. Like I was just there the entire time. And that was also cool in a different way. Right. So kind of different experiences. They're both, they both have something cool about them. They also have some things that kind of, you know, uh, might not be as cool. Yeah. But uh, what was like the big lessons learned on that deployment for you as a human? Oh, man. Um, let's see. Be, you know, be flexible, you know, be adaptable. I, I found that that, that was so key in that in that job is um, just to be flexible adaptable and try and keep a, a positive mental outlook at all you know at all times and, and uh, the other thing too I started to see like I started to see how um, negativity complaining could affect the morale of the group and it you know it could be detrimental and so always try and you know be you know be a part of not bringing people down bringing the group down but just being positive you know because there was some there was some of that going on in that group like um you know some some real negativity and uh you know it i i get it i i understand why but at the same time i don't i don't know that it you know was very productive in making us the most cohesive you know fighting unit that we could possibly be yeah when when that real simple idea of complaining and it's so bad and that's one thing i picked up from wherever in the teams was like hey don't complain don't ever complain about anything don't complain if you're cold don't complain if you're hot don't complain if you've been awake too long don't complain about anything just don't complain just don't complain and you know, obviously not everyone gets on board with that program, but it never, it never, complaining just never helps anything. Just doesn't. Yeah. Like if you, hey, if you want to joke about it, that's cool. If you want to jokingly, you know, bring something up because you're going to make it, you're going to make fun of the situation you're in, man, that's a different thing. Yeah. But if you're going to legit, if you're going to seriously say it's too hot, it's too cold, we're not getting the support we need. This is bullshit. Like those attitudes, they're just they're just they're just not good. And that's why I always liked that that team guy that you just never hear him complain. Or when someone does complain, when you get a, when you get the right crew, someone starts to complain, they get shut down. You know, and that's a good attitude to have. Is that where good comes? from? That is that is a hundred percent where good, good comes from. I that's. Love it. That's freaking Stoner. That was Stoner coming to tell me, coming to complain to me about something. Yeah, and me saying, and him saying, like, I already know what you're gonna say, and I'm like, what? And he he says, you're gonna say good because that's what you say about everything, and it's true. I'd be like, yeah. oh, we don't, we don't. Oh, we're gonna have to stay out freaking at this desert warfare training facility for an extra two weeks. Good, we're gonna get better at you. whatever it is. Yeah, let's not complain. That's not the deal. Uh, so you get home from that deployment. And it's another platoon because you're a new guy still, kind yeah. of. Now you're one cruise wonder, one and a half cruise wonder. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something, man. Did you go? Did you end up going back to sniper school? I did. Yeah. Where? I, when you got so, home? Yeah. So thankfully, I I just got to go qualify, and then I got to pick up where I left off. 
I, I learned a little trick that really helped me. You know how on our pistols, you you know, front sight focus, mm-hmm. you have that little green dot and whatever, or the little white dot. Well, I was like, I was looking at the front sight post on my, you know, M4 iron sight, and I was like, it's just straight black. Mm-hmm. I mean, aim small, miss small. And I was like, I took a little paint pen, and I just put the tiniest little white dot on my front sight post. And that really helped me to, like, put it where I needed to. And just I started doing a lot of dry firing in the positions that I was going to have to shoot and did well on the test. And then went out to, went out to sniper school. I did really good on the shooting, but I was really bad at the stocking. <laughs> and I was, like, on the bubble the entire time. And uh, But, you know, made it through sniper school, got my sniper suite, and then uh, – Unfortunately, by that point in 2010, we went to Fallujah, and um, they wouldn't allow us to take sniper weapons on ops. They were trying to de-escalate the war, and snipers don't typically do that. They (laughs) typically (laughs) throw gasoline on on things. So, so so that were you still a pig gunner in that, or did you move to point man or something? Yeah, I moved. I moved to point man and. lead navigator as well mm-hmm. i was also running ordinance department so yeah i mean it was it was good um you know and i was i felt it for the first time i felt like i didn't feel like i was some great operator but i felt like i felt confident mm-hmm. for you know because it takes a while i mean there's so much that yeah. you there's so much from like comms to you know understanding maps to you know the 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 physicality side of it to you know small unit tactics that you're trying to pick up and learn but in the in special forces you'll spend two two weeks doing this and then you'll spend a month doing that and then sometimes it'll be four months before before you shoot your gun again Mm -hmm. you know and it's like so I, i feel like um by that point you know, in my service, I finally felt like I was, you know, okay, I feel comfortable doing this. I feel like I'm decent at it, you know? The learning curve of doing platoons, I think exactly correlates to the learning curve of having children. And your first kid, you have no idea what's going on. You're a total idiot. And, but you learn so much by your second kid, you're like, okay, we kind of got this. By your third kid, you're like, I'm dialed. I'm ready. By your fourth kid, you're like, I, I got this. Like, we're we're making shit happen. <laughs> <laughs> but you see guys in their first platoon, man. It's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff. Especially nowadays. Like when I was in my first platoon, it was like, okay, you're a radio man. There's a three radios. Like it's it, it was just we weren't doing nods. We didn't have lasers on our weapons. It, everything was easier. And guys now they have a lot more to learn. Just even with the technical side, they have more to learn. And then from the operational side, there's more to learn. That's the way it goes. Um, so that what'd you do on that deployment? So, so um, as you're as now we're de-escalating. Is this like 2010 now? Yep, it's 2010. We're de-escalating. Uh, we were partnered up with Fallujah SWAT team. We were still doing you know some DAs here and there. We were doing a lot of FID with them, making sure that you know they they knew what they were doing. And we actually started. Me and a, one of our JOs kind of ran the FID, mm-hmm. and we were just making sure we were trying to turn more and more of the op over to them. Mm-hmm. So by the time, by the time that platoon was over with, um, we would go on an op, and there were only allowed to be four seals on the ground. You had to have for every one seal, I think you had to have five Iraqis. That was the ratio mm-hmm. it had to be. And so the, you know, the closest call I ever had was. Uh, a night where we got ambushed 
by three dudes and uh we only had four seals on the ground <laughs> we had we had i think two three gun trucks so we had three rg33s with those remote mm-hmm. weapon system the remote 50 cals but yeah i mean it was it was interesting getting you know in an ambush like that where you only got four dudes and then a bunch of a bunch of fallujah swat team guys and you're like you know at one point uh our aoic at the time he was like he was on my side of the street uh, just give us like give us start to finish a little bit okay um so it was really interesting jocko because as we were turning over things to the Iraqis so that they could hopefully stand on their own once we left. Um, one of the one of the very last things that we turned over to them was um, the actual coordinates for the target we were going to hit. And as a point man, I was sharing that responsibility with another another one of my you know another another guy in that platoon. And so we were we were like doing blue and gold shifts. It was my night, and so they gave me like, hey, this is the this is the eight digit grid we're hitting. These are you know maps you know, uh, of, of, of the area that we're going to, we were actually going to Abu Ghraib, mm-hmm. which is like a suburb of Baghdad and, uh, which is like a 45 minute drive from Fallujah. And so they were like, Eli. notoriously nasty part of the city. Yeah. The, pr- yeah. like the prisons there that everyone's heard about Abu Ghraib prison, but it's also like a part of town and it's, it's notoriously a pretty bad part of town. Yeah. It was a real bad part. And, um, anyway, so they, I can't remember who told me, but they were like, hey, Eli, this is the first night we're going to give these guys a grid coordinate, so I want you to walk over there with an interpreter, walk, you know, go outside our main base, go to there where they where they were sleeping, the Fallujah SWAT team, give them, give them the um, grid coordinates for the target we're hitting tonight, ask them, make sure that they know where we're going because they're actually going to lead, lead us out. And so uh, I walked over there, I gave them the, you know, the grid coordinate, I gave them the, all the maps and pictures. I was like, do you guys know where this is? And they're like, yeah, we know where this is. And so I was like, and at the time we Did had. Did you feel funky about that? Very. <laughs> and it, this made it worse too. We knew, we knew that there was one of them that was every time we left the wire that he he was calling oh. and telling people which direction we were headed. So, you know, you you always, you always feel really, really shady about that. And so gave it to him. And then probably at like one in the morning or something, we took off. Started driving, driving there, and uh, I noticed as soon as we drive into the neighborhood, there's like sirens on in, all over the neighborhood, it, like like we're already blown. And so we we did like a video, a video drop off, like vehicle drop off, like 600 yards from the target because the RGs are pretty loud, and we didn't want them to hear us like foot patrolling in or the vehicles. And so we get out, and there's four seals on the ground, and then there's like 20. Fallujah SWAT team members and we we start taking off and I'm also point man that night so it's like a 600 it's only a 600 yard patrol into target and so we're walking down this really really wide street and so I put us into uh, like a file formation so that at least a couple of us can engage if we get a contact front and so we're walking and probably halfway to the target um, and I noticed that, like, oh, as a staggered I'm, file, you said file, you meant staggered. I'm file. sorry. Yeah. All yeah. good. All good. I'm just tr- trying to tra- make sure I'm tracking. No, no, no. Thanks. Um, and so we're walking and, uh, and I'm noticing as I'm walking, cause you're always, when you're patrolling, you're always looking for like cover concealment. Hey, if we get contacted from the front, where can I duck, duck into? Is there a wall or a door or something I can, and I notice everything's boarded up bars everywhere. Nothing, nothing is open. And so 
halfway there, all of a sudden, dude, three dudes with one had an RPK machine gun, and then the other two I think had AKs. But we had a we had a Predator overhead. We had I think two Apaches, and we had a AC one thirty gunship overhead. I'd never we'd never gotten that much air in any op I'd ever been on. And so three guys open up on us and it was surreal because the guy with the RPK, no kidding, had probably 200 rounds belted together of tracer. So it was, you, you could see every bullet flying over us. And, you know, in training that you, you're taught, okay, you hit the ground, make your, make yourself as small as possible, make yourself a small target and then return fire gains fire superiority. And then somebody's going to, you know, we're, we're going to maneuver whatever the call is going to come out is going to be. And so I remember hitting the ground and just watching, you know, tracer rounds fly over us for probably a minute and a half before he had to reload. And then I could see the other two, the other two guys, muzzle flashes. I'm thinking to myself, I, I thought, you know what, if I can see their muzzle flashes, even though I have a suppressor on my gun, cause they're shooting high. I was like, if I open up right now and they, the suppressor doesn't work as well as I hope it does. And they, they pinpoint my location. I'm dead. Cause it was when we went back and looked at the footage from the pred feed, it was only 110 yard engagement. So it's very close. And, um, so were I they, did, were they in a building or were they on a roof or something or not? They were coming, they were coming around a building. So I got to watch like, the so pred they were feed. external. So you could actually see them even from the pred because they were outside. the. You building. could see them from the pred. I couldn't see them you know, even on nods, all I could see was their muzzle flash. And, uh, so anyway, like I wait and I notice that the, the, the lull of the fire dies down. And so as soon as it dies down, like I get up and I'm, like I said, I'm really slow. So, but I'm, <laughs> I'm running back and I, I must've been cooking echo and I'm like, I'm moving as fast as I can. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty light. I only have, I think four mags on me, you know, M4 mags on me and I'm running back and, AOIC is over here and he had found he's like I got I got an out I got an out and that for us means hey man I got some cover come over here and so I come over and I start I bump him off and then you know start I, I start returning fire and the gun trucks by this point pull up next you know next to me and then um, this fight I don't know goes this gunfight goes on for I don't know maybe maybe another couple minutes and then the gun trucks start you know blasting these dudes with 50 cal and it like ends like that they're like nope we're done <laughs> but it was it was um it was interesting because like the the aoic was like hey let's flank let let's let's and i i was just thinking to myself i was thinking to myself hey we were already blown when we came in these guys knew the gig was up they knew we were coming here because there were sirens all over the place we've got a bunch of our, you know, Fallujah SWAT team guys, we know at least one of them is working on the other side and they're not like a, they're not a good fighting force at all. I'm like, I was like, bro, I don't think that's a good idea. And, um, I, I say we hold what we got and get the hell out of here. And, uh, thankfully, you know, and I don't know how, how it would have worked out mm -hmm. if, if we would have done, you know, what, what he wanted to, he was just being a hard charging, you know, Oh, who was, he was, he wanted to make moves and, you know, go just, smoke these dudes but i had a real bad feeling about it and so you know thankfully he was like he listened to me and he's like let's hold what we got and we you know jumped in the trucks and we got the got the hell out of there and then it was crazy because 
because believe it or not, it was actually um, a Iraqi policeman that ambushed us. And so then they roll up, and it's like this, it gets this heated exchange, like, what WTF are you guys doing? You know, because we, we had to pass, you, you know how that works, where you have to pass up to, you know, their higher-ups, yeah. like, where we're going to be operating. So there's deconfliction that goes on. And um, it got really, it, it was starting to get a little tense. And I remember there were, we had some guys in the trucks, you know, just some shooters in the trucks. I'm like, hey, you guys get out of those trucks. If this goes down, we need to we need to make sure that we finish this. And so, anyway, nobody got nobody got hurt on our side, which I couldn't believe because, like, I was watching hundreds of tracer rounds stream into what my chief's position. I thought he was done because he didn't come up over comms for probably forty seconds to kind of make a call on what what he wanted. But um, anyway, we got back. We drove back to Fallujah after that, and it was kind of wild because. Um, the ROIC at the time, who was actually who was actually uh, my swim buddy and buds and a really good friend of mine, he, you know, he, thankfully he didn't bring this up in the debrief, but he was like, uh, he came to me in the team room. And he's like, Eli, what were what were you doing? I, what were you doing tonight? And I'm like, what are you what are you talking about, dude? He's like, I was screaming at you from inside the RG33 to get back. Because I was once I bumped that guy out, I I came out on the left and I started trying to engage their muzzle flashes mm -hmm. with my laser, and uh, he was like, uh, he's like, bro, he's like, the wall right behind you, rounds were exploding right over your head. They had a total beat on you. They were just shooting like a foot high, and I was like, dude, I'm sorry, bro. I could not hear you. And that's one thing I learned on that deployment is that those cool silings that we have, that like work as comms pieces, but also ear pro you can't hear the crack over your head because they cancel that anything over like 105 decibels mm -hmm. or whatever they were canceling it out. So I couldn't hear it. I didn't know they had a beat on me, but, um, you know, thankfully, you know, uh, it, Moosh, it worked can't out. can't shoot too well. No, thankfully thank, Moose shoots a little high at night. Thank God, man. But, but yeah, that was, that was interesting that, um, because, because of the situation and we had so many, Jundies or you know Iraq Fallujah SWAT team members with us. Um, it really limited our ability to do stuff when we needed to. Mm -hmm. So you wrap up that deployment, yeah. Um, and then what's your plan? Because now you got two platoons. You maybe could do a third platoon. You maybe could go to training cell or trade debt. Maybe, go, you, you know, what's your options? What are you looking at? What do, what do you make up your mind to do? Yeah. So I was looking at a couple of different things. My body was pretty tore up at that point. I I hurt my back really bad, um, you know, weightlifting. And I had – the Navy wasn't able to diagnose it at the time. Turns out once I got out of the Navy and went to, like, a civilian doc, um, like Laser Spine Institute in Phoenix, they were like, hey, man, you got – um, you know, you got some stress fractures in your spine, you've got some, you know, some stuff going on. We can either give you a fusion or we can just give you shots. And I was just like, okay, I'll just wait. But my back was pretty messed up at that time. It really, you know, was pretty excruciating just to even wear body armor. And so I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the fact, um, that I've kind of done what I came to do as far as like, I wanted to go serve my country. Um, and, and I had little 
you know, I was kind of watching my little kids grow up in pictures mm-hmm. or my oldest grow up in pictures. And I was just like, man, you know, that, that was kind of tearing, tearing at me a little bit. And so I was like, I was like, I'm either going to go, um, through our like ASO program. I need something new. If I'm going to stay and do this, I'm going to either need to go like ASO or screen or something, but I'm not, you know, I need to, you know, I need to some change. And so started thinking about it. I was definitely praying about it. And, uh, while I was on that deployment, I actually was like, but I want to make sure that I give myself enough time to make a good decision because my family's counting on it. And so I actually reenlisted on that deployment. And, um, at the time you could give your kids the GI bill. If you reenlist it, you had enough time in, um, and you know, uh, and so I split, I, I, I gave my daughter my GI Bill and reenlisted for four so that I had enough time to plan the exit. And at that point, I, I was pretty confident that I was done, you know, you know, deploying. And I was, I started focusing on, okay, I need to, I need to exit. And uh, I did, I did, you know, talk to some folks about ASO. I looked at it a little bit. I never really looked at screening. Um, and then as I, w- I went to the recruiting directorate after that. So that's when you got home from deployment. Yes. You went to the recruiting directorate. I don't even know what that is. Right. No, most people don't. Um, so when I came into is it the NSW t- recruiting yes, director, yep. got it. When I came into the teams, uh, we only were filling 60% of our billets at the schoolhouse. So that's why guys like me could come. You know, I knew guys that went to Bud's three or four times, but now if you, even if you come, well, I'm working off old information, but when I was at the recruiting director, even if you like were an Olympic athlete and you came in there and you crushed the screen test, like it never been crushed before earliest spot you were getting was nine months out, you know? And so, um, what, what the Navy did was, and the reason I took the job is because my old platoon chief, an old, um, you know, master chief, uh, JT, mm-hmm. you know, JT. Yep. yep. He, uh, he said, Hey, Hey Eli, if you come work for me, I'll let you go to school in the afternoon. So you can finish up that old degree, start work toward working towards getting out. And I'm like, that sounds like pretty cool. And, uh, so I took that job, started doing that, uh, working for him. And, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because the Navy sent us all over the country. They had done a Gallup survey that showed that, there were seven different sports that young men were playing um, that were uh, enabling them to be more successful at a higher rate than um, others. What were they? So one was water polo. I think two was swimming and three was wrestling. And that's where we spent Check. most of our time. And it, it made total sense to me because, like, football players weren't doing well. And it made sense to me because, like, I was a quarterback, and they were like, you know, they put a red jersey on me, like, don't hit that dude. Or like, you know, it was like, it was so position driven in football that, and when you look at it, like wrestling, water polo, swimming, you know, the types of sports like that, where it's like, it doesn't matter how big you are, you're doing everything, you know, and you're going to be held to a standard, you know, I mean, you look at big old Echo or what mm-hmm. position you play Echo? Wide receiver. That was a lot smaller. Are you got to be small. kidding me. He was dude. only 185 back then. Yeah. Oh, my God, dude. We've been through this. Long time ago. <laughs> Holy cow, bro. <laughs> did, did you, like, eat a cornerback or something? Dude? Like, how'd you get <laughs> In so the big? meantime. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like, even as, like, uh, you know, as a wide receiver, like, they would make, you know, you know how it was. It was like, okay, this is your position. This is what we want you to be good at. But we're not going to focus you and, 
in in the in seal training bro it's like nobody cares how big you are what position you played it's like you're doing you're doing everything you know so those were the sports that um, the NSW directorate was trying to raise awareness. But you around. said seven sports. That's three. What were the other four? Do you remember? It was, yeah, it remember? was like crew, cross country. Um, crew, I think lacrosse. Lacrosse, wrestling, water polo. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, though, but that's where we spent the most of our time on those three. And uh, they would send what they called uh, SEAL scouts around to those type of events in high school, college. And we, what we would do is we would show a video of like, you can't, you can't recruit a SEAL. If you have to talk somebody into showing up to that and then they f- see it for real, they're like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing this. So what we would actually try and do is just raise awareness like this is an option for you and then, um, and, and then leave and then let them, you know, self-select themselves into it. And so we go around the country doing that. So I did that for about a year and a half and then got an opportunity to, to go over to trade at and uh, be in uh, MarOps. Got a spot in VBSS and I started, you know, just um, learning from the guy who was the LPO at the time. I actually got to go by his house last night and have a beer with him and have some dinner with him. But uh, after that is when he left, he turned it over to me and I became the LPO of VBSS. And so... Honestly, that was the best training I got to go into entrepreneurship because, you know, as you know, like you, you have like a hundred times more of this than I ever did. But I never got put in a leadership position like that where there were so many things that you had to account for, so many things that you were tracking on, making sure things are going to be in the right place. And then also when things don't go as planned how do we flex what do we do what's the contingency and so you know that was a phenomenal opportunity for me because i was even running my small business bottle breacher out of our one car garage in point loma while doing that and just working stupid hours but um you know that was really helpful in you know uh you know helping me learn how to be a better leader Um, but it was also cool to see too just you know, uh, being a part of being, being on the other side and watching, you know, the, the training cycle, how much goes into it and, uh, making sure that these guys are prepared when they go down range. So you're, you're teaching VBSS and you just mentioned this is when you started bottle breacher for the first time. Yeah. How'd that come about? So it came about, um, I was actually, I knew I was getting out. I probably had, you know, two and a half years before my time was up, but I'd watched a lot of my buddies get out before me that had the same credentials same qualifications i watch them struggle like to find something that they could actually sink their teeth into and i knew that wasn't even an option for me because i i had a daughter or two at the time and so i was like man eli you got to figure this out and so it was a little bit of fear that was driving me um but also going back to that identity early on like you know i didn't i I didn't want to you know that one of the things that my brothers used to call me was a fuck up. They used to call me that all the time. And I, I'm not trying to throw F-bombs on your show. I know this is, you know, some kids listen to the show, but, you know, it is what it is. And so uh, there was a part of me that, you know, still had that identity in the back of my mind, like, hey, well, maybe you got lucky and became a SEAL, but this is when you're actually going to show the world that you are, you know, that that F up. And so, um, 
you know, not only did I not want to be that, but I also wanted to make sure that my little girls and my wife were provided for. So like I was doing that, you know, the VBSS thing, the LPO thing and running bottle breacher at the same time. But the way it actually came about was I remember my little brother who is a Marine Corps pilot. He is a Cobra pilot. He went, he went to the PI and at one of the outdoor markets there got a 50 cal bottle opener and he brought it back and he gave it to me. And I was like, dude, this, what is this thing? It opened your beer? No way. Try it. <laughs> yep. Sure enough, it does. And I was like, dude, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And, uh, so I put it in my junk drawer. And then when my buddies would come over to my house, to, like watch a UFC or something, they were like, dude, that is badass. Where can I get one? And I was always like, I don't know, man, unless you go to the Philippines. But I started thinking about it and I was, I actually went up to LA, um, for Thanksgiving that my, some family members were having up there. And I remember on the way back, I was like, dude, that thing is cool, but it was real generic, just plain brass, all dinged up. And I was like, but it could be way better. And so I came back and I went into my garage and I spray painted it black. And then I, I had bought a bunch of Punisher stickers cause I made platoon DVDs for my last, my last platoon and I took one of the little Punisher stickers once the paint dried and I put it on there and it was like uh, <laughs> I was like oh my god this thing is insane and so I took it to work you know the next you know the next day or so I showed it to my buddies they were like dude this is maybe the coolest thing I've ever seen make me one make me five for every guy in my family and so that's when the light bulb like came on like this thing is cool, but it could be way better. And nobody that I knew of or any of my buddies knew of was selling them in the States. And so it was at that time, my wife was, she was running a couple online or one, she, she'd, she'd had success with some online businesses, just small little online businesses like boutiques and stuff, but she knew how to work, you know, the store, the internet, and she graduated with a degree in, you know, biz, business from U of A university of Arizona. So she was definitely had that part down where I was extremely weak. And I was like, babe, babe, do you think you can help me sell these online? She's like, well, let me do some research and you know, I'll let you know. And so she comes back and she's like, yep, I, I know what we're going to do. She's like, we're going to sell them on Etsy. And I'm like, Etsy, what is Etsy? How about eBay or something I've heard of? And she's, she's like, no, trust me. She's like, women shop on e Etsy all the time. It's like an artisan, whatever artisan, you know, website. And she's like, they will buy them for their men. And, and so we started them and the first ones, um, after that one that I already had. So I, I started buying dummy rounds online and then I would, you know, I'd start practicing cutting them with a Dremel tool, mm -hmm. you know, just like crawl, walk, run. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what we used to say in the seal teams all the time. I was like, I just have to figure out. And I didn't know anything about manufacturing, cutting metal. I was just a dude in the garage. <laughs> how do I make that cut? <laughs> and so I, I cut, like I figured out how to get it down. And this was kind of cool. It would take me, it would take me about, I think 25 minutes to cut one when I started mm -hmm. and they look like crap, but people still bought them. Um, but then I started getting real squared away with my manufacturing and I realized Jocko that the tip of my broom handle that I cut off with a Dremel tool fit perfectly over a 50 cal round. So now I could make a fixture, my first fixture. And I cut, I cut the cut into the broom handle and then I take a Sharpie marker and I would actually draw the cut on there. So that 
because it was taking me seven minutes. I timed myself to actually like take a tape measuring cloth, measure out all the, all the dots, then connect them. And then I would take my Dremel tool, put it in a vise and cut them. And so that was my first fixture. And then now, now we were, now we were cooking. right? <laughs> right? And so they were, you know, they were still really rough. Like I would prime them, then I'd paint them. And then I was like, okay, if these team guys who, you know, get everything, you know, people think they're the coolest dudes in the world. They're willing to buy them. Anybody would buy them. I just have to figure out how to market it to somebody else. So I started thinking, okay, these are going to be big in the military units, firemen, cops, et cetera. And so I started buying stickers online and I started painting them and putting stickers on them and we would market them that way. And it was interesting because, you know, when you start, when you start selling stuff, typically you want to start your price point high and then work down until you find somebody that'll buy it. And so I remember looking at what everybody else was doing. They were selling them, you know, like really generic cheap ones for like 20, you know, 20 bucks. And I'm like, I want to see if I can start mine at like 28 and make more profit. And so I started at 28 crickets. Nobody <laughs> bought them, brought it down, waited two weeks, brought it down to 24 99. A couple people bought them. Oh, cool. We got our first sale. And then, you know, let it, let it hang out there for a bit and then brought it down to where everybody else was. Boom, floodgates open. People are buying these things nonstop and, you know, we're in business. And so at that point, I just kept, you know, working it, working it, trying to improve, you know, our fighting position or the product. Found somebody that was an actual machinist that could cut them professionally. Found a professional powder cutter that could put, instead of putting paint on them to actually like powder coat them and we just i want to get one of the old school no, freaking spray painted one my of those boy, that's what i want my boy i've got like i've got like probably a hundred bottle breachers from people give them to me and we have some that we give away yeah and so i have but i want i want one that's spray painted with a gnarled uh cut that barely works that's what i want i saw one last night school. yeah my boy uh my boy mike um he was the lpo at vbss before he passed the job over to me and uh he had he broke out one of the old ones i was like damn i was looking at the dremel cut nicks and crappy <laughs> cut and i'm like god i can't believe it but you know honestly and i am big on my faith and i remember that point in my life and i was definitely afraid of failing my family and, you know, I was still seeking God in the things in, in my life. And I was praying. I was like, Lord, how do you want me to provide for my family when I get out of the military? And it was funny, man. When, when He's I, like beer openers. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, right. But here, here's the cool thing, man. You know, it, they, they are bottle openers and most people use them to open their beer. But, you know, the cool thing is, is like even something like that, if you give God the glory, dude, you'd be surprised at some of the doors he will open in your in your life. So, you know, um, and it's just it's it's crazy, man, because um, when I told people, especially Navy guys, they were like, Eli, what are you going to do when you get out? And I'm like, hey. I'm, I'm selling, selling bottle, bottle openers. <laughs> Jocko, I'm surprised somebody didn't send me to you, bro. They, they were like, uh, yeah, that's probably not going to work out, man. Let's get this guy to a psychological eval ASAP. But it was cool because within six months, we were. my original goal wasn't to build like a multi-million dollar business. It was like, hey, I want to make some extra money for a date night or to save up for you know my next firearm or whatever, just some um, supplemental income. And then as it started growing, I was like, dude, this could be something. And six months into it, we were doing $7,500 a month, which blew me away. I never thought we'd even get there. And then at that point, 
I made one of the better moves that I ever made in business. And, uh, I sold my chopper. I had a motorcycle that I used to drive over to your gym and do jujitsu with. But, um, and, uh, I sold the chopper and I bought a laser. I took the funds and I bought a laser engraver. And that is when things just went because I was watching an episode of shark tank and, um, these the sharks were tearing apart an entrepreneur primarily kevin o'leary who became one of my um investors and he's he was ripping apart an entrepreneur because this guy he had decent sales he had a pretty cool unique product but he had no brand recognition on the product so like he had the brand on the packaging but as soon as it left what the was packaging, it, what was the product it was like a green neon suit that you would wear at a football game or like a you know like skiing or something made you stand out right and the guy kevin and mark there's a market for that (laughs) i for a green neon suit like a skin tight suit yeah like spandex suit exactly yeah and so the guy had he was doing 300k in sales and you know annually i've never seen a human in a green neon suit i'd never seen one either but he (laughs) he had this he had the sales he had the product there and kev they were looking at it and kevin's like you know, he's like, is the brand on, on this anywhere? And the guy's like, no. He's like, Kevin just starts ripping him up. He's like, this is the dumbest thing that, you know, you can do as an entrepreneur. He's like, what if, what if somebody's looking at it and outside the package and they want to know who made it, but they can't find your brand on there anywhere. They can't go Google it and look it up online. And so I was sitting on the couch with my wife, Jen, and we, we because we had two small kids, I was in the Navy still, and we were running Bottle Breacher. There wasn't a lot of free time, but... We did allow ourselves, like, that was our, like, you know, one show that we'd watch together. And I was like, babe, we got to figure out how to get Bottle Breacher on each and every one of these units leaving the garage. And so I started doing some research, which led me to laser engraving. And so I had about $30,000 in the bank from, like, a reenlistment bonus. And I was like, I don't, we're getting out of the Navy. I don't want to risk, you know, our little nest egg on something and unknown, right? And so I was like, I'm going to sell my bike. And San Diego is the best place in the world to have a motorcycle. I mean, just the best place. And and so that was hard for me to do, but I later read Rich Dad Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki, and he talks about all the time, you know, um, and and you know he talks about his book Rich Dad Poor Dad what 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 the rich teach their kids that the poor don't. Basically, the summary is you know wealthy people teach their kids to buy assets not liabilities, right? Assets, something that makes you money, liability, something that costs you money. And I hadn't read the book at the time, but that was basically the move that I made. And, you know, by doing that, our sales went from $7,500 at the six month mark to a month and a half later, we were doing $22,000 a month out of that same one car garage to the point where like, I couldn't keep up with it. I had to start like moon, like bringing guys in from the military that were like, you know, doing whatever job and they'd have, they'd work in the garage and help me out. And then, you know, um, I think, you know, a year after that point, we were doing $80,000 a month out of that one car garage. And that's when I pitched to shark tank. And, uh, so you were still on active duty when you pitched to shark tank? I was, yeah, I was, I was right at the tail end. end. Okay. I was right at the tail end and there was an open casting call down here in like Mira Mesa and uh i was sitting with one of my advisors in la and he's like eli you got to get on that show and so found an open casting call went down there they were like hey first 500 people get a, get to pitch to a, a casting member and so i went got in line at like one in the morning i was like number <laughs> yeah, like yeah. 125 God. and then and then uh came back the next day once i got my little 
wristband badge and uh you know knocked it out of the park and then they were like within a week no within that was on a saturday monday morning they sent me an email they said hey we loved your pitch we need you have one week to make a video and i you know made the video they loved it we kept moving on and it was funny because they when you get in that process they assign you a couple producers and who are kind of coaching you through the process and uh, they were like, it was funny, me and Jen would have to hop on the phone with them every Friday at like 4 p.m. to have a like a conference call with them. How's the pitch going? Where are you guys at in the process? And uh, it was funny, they were always telling Jen, we, we would practice our pitch on the phone with these guys. And they were like, Jen, Eli's just not excited. You've <laughs> got to get him excited. He sounds like he's not enjoying this. And I'm like, guys, I'm not a cheerleader. Yeah. Like when I, when I need to get excited, like all... But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rah 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 siskumba like I'm gonna tell you hey this is what we're doing these are what the sales are this could be something and but you you got to keep in mind it's a TV show so they want you to like you yeah. know they want you to be all they want that drama bro they want the drama they want bro. that drama <laughs> yeah but anyway we we got we got an opportunity to go on the show and uh, we you know it, it went really well and uh, got two sharks. Uh, Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary and uh, you know it just it started blowing up and that created another another leadership challenge to uh, to work through so then where the, once it came out how much longer did you have in the Navy once the show came out so I actually pitched on the show um, I feel weird telling the uh, seal commander this but <laughs> I was on terminal leave when I pitched that's, so that's legal dude is it yeah yeah totally okay well yeah. At least right. as far as I know. Well, I've been out of the Navy now <laughs> since what? Uh, since 2014. So I, maybe there's a statute of limitations, hopefully. But anyway, so, yeah, I was on terminal leave. So I wasn't even going into work, but I went and pitched in L.A. And uh, and then the show, um, the show actually aired the month after I got out of the Navy, my final, my final month in the Navy. So it was like perfect timing for us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we started, we started working, you know, we started working, you know, did you move back to Arizona? We, yeah, as soon as I could, even, even on terminal leave, I moved my family back to Arizona. So, um, what'd you get? Did you get a building for production? Like what'd you do from that aspect? We did. We, we, we rented space. Um, we rented a couple different spaces and, uh, we, we just ran it out of there. And it was interesting because when you go through that process, um, there's no guarantee that, even if you go to LA and you shoot the show, there's no guarantee that your episode's even going to air. Mm -hmm. So this goes right back to kind of like the, the situation I talked about in, in my second time taking those orders, coming back to Buds. It was a big risk because at that point we had like $70,000 in the bank in our business account. And I remember knowing that, you know, if this show airs, we need a lot more inventory. We need more machinery. We need to hire some people. But if it doesn't air, we just wasted all of our money or we're going to have to figure something out. And so we, again, we went big, we gambled, we spent every last cent we had. My wife who, who ran the numbers, who's always run the numbers, she was like, hey, if this show doesn't air, we're not going to make payroll. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, it, thankfully it aired when it was supposed to air. And, you know, I think we did like $450,000 that night of the airing. Yeah. And that was, it would have been way bigger than that, but that we got so much traffic on the website. I was told it was like 13,000 hits a second because there was like 12, 12 million people watching the show. Dang. And uh, they were like, the, the website crashed within seconds of it airing on the, on the East Coast. And so thankfully, uh, 
one of the things that I learned in the teams, guys like Jocko, was one is none, two is one. Always have a backup. So we had a redundancy plan in place. We put up a banner on the website, hey, go to Etsy. We still had our Etsy store. People were still able to buy there. And so we limped, limped through it. And then we were all like, yes, this is awesome. You know, great exposure, great sales. And then I'm like, now we have to make this stuff, <laughs> right? Because we don't call it. It's not like we're calling China, like yeah, yeah. you know. And so we were before we, Shark Tank. We don't call China around here. That's right. That's right, my man. <laughs> so um, we were making like 135 bottle breachers on a good day before Shark Tank. I think when we woke up the next day, we had to make like 60,000 bottle breachers, <laughs> and we had 20,000 emails to answer. And like people are pissed off. Like this is the day and age of Amazon, yeah. man. And, like we're the, this little mom and pop shop that was like we're not making with Dremel tools anymore but i mean we don't we're not making them that fast and so it created a real leadership challenge where you know uh, that lesson of hey what we did yesterday you can't say this is how we we've always done it because how we've always done it ain't gonna work anymore and we gotta we gotta think outside the box we gotta get creative and thankfully i mean it took me longer than i i would have liked to have figured figured it out but Thankfully, we finally figured it out, got things up on step, and were able to handle national television airings and stuff like that. And so what year was that? That was 2014. How long did it take you to get caught up with 60,000 <laughs> bacon of three, 135 three, a day? Three months. It took, <laughs> took us three months, and people were pissed, man. Yeah. The worst part is if some people somehow were finding Mark and Kevin's you know, emails are Shark Tank investors. And they were like, you, I can't believe you did a deal with this company. These guys are idiots. You're stupid, <laughs> you know? And we're, like me and like, at that point in my life, nothing was worse than getting an email from, you know, Mark Cuban, like WTF, you guys need to get this stuff straightened out. You know, and it was just like, I mean, that's the type of thing that would just ruin your night, you know? But, you know, going back to just like working for Chris Kyle, dude, hey. That don't that don't cut it anymore, yep. man. You're, yep. you know. So I, I think it's been. I think it's was a blessing, and it's definitely prepared me for what I'm doing now. But There's a. I watched. I watched the. They have a, a YouTube video that's like after the Shark Tank. Beyond the tank. Yeah, beyond the tank. No. And it was pretty cool. Uh, O'Leary, you know, he was talking about you and talking about veterans. You could see he's a patriotic guy. He was getting like he's getting choked up talking yeah. about what you guys were doing and just thankful for your service. So I thought that was. To me, that was awesome to see because I, I don't I, I don't watch that show. Echo is like a yes. big time yes. watcher of Shark Tank. Yeah, did you watch this like when it happened live? Oh, you you did. It's my yeah. boy, dude. In the game, boy, dude. In the game, yes, sir. Over there. Oh well, yeah. Were you nervous before you walked out there? Or a li a little bit, but I was more excited. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I was a little bit nervous because you know it's like you know that you you're about to either be a hero or a zero on national <laughs> television and uh, obviously too like all those entrepreneurs like like they have more you know business acumen in their finger than i did in my entire body but i knew we had something mm -hmm. and i knew that if we could just get on the show obviously it was a controversial product because it was a bullet you know oh, bottle opener so right. i was worried about that but it was funny because um one of the things that we'd rehearse was we were going to get each shark their favorite beer and then, um, you know, hand out the personalized bottle breachers that I'd made for each one of them and then let them, you know, op open their beer with it. And we were all going to cheers and whatever. Well, um, last minute, the prop director guy, he's like, hey, we're not going to use their favorite beers or whatever. We're going to use these beers 
that we have backstage and I'm like, Hey, your call, your show, whatever you guys want to do. And so I don't know if somebody was playing a joke on me or what, dude, but I went and I, you know, took my bottle up, my bottle breacher, I breachered up and this thing starts foaming all over the place. And I look at it and I'm like, you know, this is like, they're opening their beers. I'm opening, you know, my beer and I'm supposed to cheer up, you know, do the cheers thing. And I was just like, whatever, dude, I just, just, you know, you know, take a big swig of it. And it was funny because we start our pitch and Jen like leans over to me and she whispers to me, she's like, there's beer there's foam in your mustache <laughs> and i was like whatever dude <laughs> just keep charlie mike right just keep going dude so we we did it you know and it it was uh it was a blessing and i think it's led to you know so much so much other stuff but um you know it definitely isn't always roses and one of the hardest things about it was working with my spouse you know i mean you know i hadn't even learned to barely live with my spouse at that point because I'd been gone a lot and um you know we we were both kind of like type a's like button heads all the time and it definitely took some learning to what we call stay in your swim lane you know and like uh, you do what you do I do what I do and I'm and try not to sleep on the couch spent a lot of time sleeping on the couch (laughs) but you know I probably deserved it so you're you're talking about the fact that you know like uh with your faith, with, you know, you, you basically a couple times in your life at critical times have been praying and saying, hey, look, if I'm supposed to go to Bud's, open the door. If not, close it. You yep. know, I need a way to help my family. If I leave the Navy, open a door. I'm knocking. Let me in. Let me, let me, let me know what to do. Yeah. Serious guidance for you. Yeah, it was. And it was interesting because after after the shark tank and i i know there's a spectrum here um and i don't try not to compare myself to other people but i knew just by knowing myself i knew i wasn't in a good spot mentally like you know done five deployments and uh i'd got i'd gotten out and i felt this like anger and this rage inside me and um yeah i tried to keep it under wraps because like i i didn't think it was cool i didn't want you know, people to know that like I was struggling with certain things and, um, it, you know, and then all the stress of being a dad to young kids and, and then running this, running this business with your spouse who you've just barely learned to, you know, work with. And so I felt like, you know, I was on the struggle bus. I felt like I was failing as a, as a husband in many ways. And even as a dad, and I was laser focused on this business because I was like, took the same mentality from the SEAL teams. Like, Hey, just go as hard as you can outflank your enemy, you know, stand up this team. And, you know, sometimes when you're laser focused on something, you start dropping other important priorities. And when it really resonated with me, like the spot that I was in, um, probably, probably two years after shark tank, I think it was 2016, a buddy of mine here in San Diego, um, who was in that VBSS cell with me, just a good dude. I'm pretty sure he's still active. He was an E-dog and then got his commission. Um, and he called me up. And w- usually when he called me, it was just to talk shit to me. We called it banter therapy. We'd just you know, tell each other how worthless they were, mm-hmm. and we'd laugh about it. And then like it felt like you just did like a, you know, an hour-long intensive therapy session or something. And so I was like, oh, here we go. You know, his initials are KP. KP's calling. We're going to we're gonna get after each other, and then, you know, 
you know, just see, catch up, see how he's doing. And I could tell immediately he wasn't calling to, you know, banter therapy, give me a hard time. And he's like, hey, man, I got bad news. And I'm like, what's up, dude? And he's like, hey, man, Chuck is dead. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, Chuck is dead. He uh, he got killed um, fighting with the Peshmerga, you know, fighting ISIS. I think it was yesterday or something. You know, like, I don't remember what else he said. Um, but we got we got off the phone, and I was just in shock because Chuck Keating was one of my new guys at uh, SEAL Team 3 and Delta Platoon. And, like, like I was, like, his, kind of his sea daddy, you know, like, looked after him. Um just love the kid such a such a solid dude and went on to become just a phenomenal seal um but it was i noticed how i was in trouble because i remember walking out of bottle breacher and i didn't like i i felt like i was getting ready to just break down and i didn't want my staff to see me you know break down i didn't think that would be professional and uh I remember feeling it like I remember feeling the emotion come up from my stomach into my throat and like, all right, cool. Let's, let's just get this out. And it just like stopped and it wouldn't like, I couldn't, I couldn't mourn. I couldn't, I couldn't shed a tear. I couldn't cry. And, uh, this happened. Like I started walking around the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the like mall that bottle breachers buildings are located in happened like four or five times. And I was like, Oh damn, dude, that's kind of, that's kind of weird. And, uh, I've kind of, it was, it was, it was so weird that I started thinking about it. And that was the first time that had ever happened. And there had probably been, I don't know, to that point, probably 15, at least 15 guys that I knew that had been killed, you know, in war. And, uh, he was out of all of them, none of them were closer to me than him. And I, it was kind of, I was perplexed at why I couldn't mourn, mourn him. And so I started thinking about it and there's a, uh, there's a, there's a verse in Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life. And I realized, I realized that not only had I not guarded my heart, but I had built massive walls around my heart to where I couldn't feel anything anymore. I couldn't even feel, I couldn't even mourn like one of my best friends that just got killed fighting ISIS and I knew I was in trouble. And, uh, and the other thing I realized was that that wasn't an isolated incident. Like it was affecting the, the, the springs of life that as a father and a husband that we're supposed, are supposed to be flowing out of us so that we can love those around us, especially our spouses, our kids that they were broke, man, that those walls that I built around my heart so that I couldn't be hurt anymore. Like it was affecting, it was keeping some of the arrows of life out, but it was definitely affecting that love that was supposed to be flowing out. And I just knew I was in trouble. And uh, thankfully a buddy of mine named Rick, who loves your show, by the way, um, he invited me to this, this men's retreat and it was like a Christian men's retreat. And I was like, Oh God, that sounds awful. Um, but you know, he kept after me for a couple of years and it's called, uh, it was called Ransom Heart. It's called, you know, um, now it's called Wild at Heart. The guy that wrote the book Wild at Heart is a guy named John Eldridge. And uh, he writes some phenomenal books. But finally, I said, you know what, man? I want to be a better man. I want to be a better husband, a better dad, and, and all of that. So I'll, I'm going to go with you. And so I went in, uh, I think it was 2017, and the event changed my life, man. And uh, I think the biggest question, biggest questions most of us ask 
theologically or who am I? Why am I here? Why is the world so messed up? What can I do about it? And, uh, you know, I definitely got some answers to those questions. And it was cool, man. It wasn't like there was no religion, you know, there was no churchianity. You would think going to an event like that, you'd be surrounded by a bunch of Ned Flanders types. But it was just a bunch of regular dudes um, who all came with the same questions that I had. And I think and I think many of them were in the same spot that I was. They hadn't taken care of their heart. They hadn't guarded their heart. And um, the, in the scripture, it also, um, I think it's First Peter 5, 5, 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind, for your enemy the devil prowls the earth like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I have seen a lot of men devoured. I mean, we got 22 vets every day killing themselves. And that's just the states that report it. And that's just one, that's just one area um, of, of devouring going on. And, you know, it's like, I've always, and I know that not everybody believes the same things that I believe. I, I, I totally get that. And I respect that. But I've always believed that if like, if you, if you get something good and you don't share it with other people, if you have a life altering experience and you don't point others to it, that's pretty messed up and you're not being a team guy at that point. And so I like, I want to share that with people because I, I realize there's a lot of dads out there and a lot of husbands out there and a lot of, you know, vets out there and first responders out there that have a lot of questions and they're dealing with a lot of stuff. And like me, many of you have tried to like stuff it down like a beach ball under the water and you can hold that beach ball down under the water for a couple sec, you know, couple seconds maybe even a minute if you're strong like echo over here but sooner or later man that thing's coming up mm. and if you don't take care of it it's going to explode and usually on the people that you love the most was there was there uh like concrete actions that you took when you got home from the retreat yeah there were the first thing i did was i apologized to my wife the very first thing because I realized just, and this goes back to extreme ownership, man. I realized how many, just how many ways I had failed her, you know, and how she needed me. She needed to, she needed me to fight for her. And off the time, I was so proud, Jocko, and so screwed up in so many ways that half the time I couldn't even apologize to her if I, if I screwed up, man. And I was broken and, you know, I needed, I needed fixing and, one of the first things that you you need in that situation is to realize, hey, man, I'm broken and it's okay to get help. It's okay, you know, to seek it out. That And that that's not how team guys are trained to thought. We're taught to BTF, Charlie Mike, figure it out, keep moving forward, you know, and, and, and we're not, we're not, we try and stay away from medical. We try and stay from, stay away from any of the touchy feely emotional stuff because we got stuff to do. And that stuff's typically not help helpful, but I can tell you after going to that, going through that ministry, and I've been many times now over the last several years, but my marriage, I never thought my marriage would be great. I actually have a great marriage now, man. And so much of it was because I, I was equipped to not go back into my own story and get some healing, but also get some tools on how to move forward um, and just understand the the bigger perspective of this story that we live in, man. And 
you know, it's like one of the things they teach there is that you were given a masculine heart for a reason because you were born into a world at war. And I think a lot of the stuff that we see in society has spiritual undertones and foundations to it. And if you don't like, if nobody ever teaches you that stuff, man, it, it's, it's kind of like getting shot at from, and you have no idea where you're getting shot at from. There's a lot. I think there's a parallel there, but the first thing I did was apologize to my wife. And the second, one of the second things that, uh, there's another scripture and forgive me. I don't remember exactly wh- which one it is, but it, the scripture is I stand at the door and I knock and whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and, and he with me. And that's what I needed, man. I just, I just prayed and I gave it up and I said, Lord, I'm broken. I'm hurting on the inside and I'm inviting you in to come rip all this stuff out of my life and my heart that I don't need. That's dragging me down. And that's not helpful to my family, to those that even trusted me to love and take care of. And I need, I need your help. And it, it kind of goes from trying to do it on your own to being like, Hey, Lord, come in here and help, help me with that. And I, I say that respectfully, man, because again, I know that pe- a lot of people don't see things the way I do or feel this, feel the same way. But again, I'm not trying, I'm just trying to help other people. Cause I know there's a lot of dudes out there asking the same questions that I, that I was asking and they want relief and they want to be well and they don't know how to, they don't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's like a route to humility that you're talking about and there's a bunch of different routes to humility. And I was actually thinking about that earlier today, you know, like the, one of the, one of the founding tenets of Christianity is, Hey, I'm going to put God above myself. Well, that's 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 humility to put you know i i talk about humility oftentimes from a leadership perspective you put the team above yourself you put someone else's plan above your own plan that's that's a form of humility and extreme ownership is you you can't be you can't take ownership without being humble enough to say oh this 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 problem was my fault so i think you know the 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 route that you take to get to a point where you can say okay I'm gonna be humble, I'm gonna look at my life and say, hey, hey, wife of 10 years, I'm sorry that I haven't been as good as I can. Right. That what, what it takes to get you there is, you can, t- you can take a bunch of different paths to get there, but humbling yourself, whether it's before God, whether it's before your team, whether it's before your wife and saying, hey, yep. I know I can do better, that's a path that is going to help anybody and and I think how you get there, there's a bunch of different ways, and the result is gonna is gonna bring you to a, an, an area where you are gonna find improvement. Yeah, yeah, no, I agreed, and I definitely um, needed to be humbled, you know. And uh, all the guys that are a part of that, you know, that ministry, John, Morgan, Bart, man, thank you guys so much for everything you, you've done. Because I I know it's not just me. I know that they've helped thousands of dudes through it, and. If you guys want to go check it out, just go look up, you know, wild at heart. I think it's wild at or whatever, but man, wow. Just a life changing, uh, experience for me. And it, it really, I went from wanting to build the biggest, baddest veteran owned company in the, you know, in the United States to, uh, you know, wanting to focus on my family more and, um, and also just coming back to, okay, God, you know, you've blessed, you've blessed me with so much. 
how do you want me to spend the rest of my life? Like, where, where do you, where do you want me to be? What do you want me to, you know, be doing? And, um, and now, here, now here I am, man, you know, doing something that I never, ever thought I'd be a part of. But I think that's what happens when often you turn it over and be like, whatever you want me to do, just open the door. And if you don't want me to do it, please shut the door, you know, but, uh, I definitely want to spend, spend the rest of my life trying to help you know, help people and, and, and guide them towards, you know, uh, concrete stuff that actually helped me. And through that idea of serving, here you are now running for Congress in Arizona. Yeah. What, what, I mean, that's just a, uh, like a, like a, like a masochistic move, right? To go and just open up your life, give away your time, give away your privacy, give away uh, any semblance of civility from other human beings. Right. And, and here you are. Yeah. You're going for it. Yeah. Um, I am. And, you know, I think we're off, we're, we're off to a good start, but I went into this knowing that there was a good chance that um, you know, the, the outcome that many people, including myself, were, are, are striving towards will not, there's a, there's a decent chance that that outcome will not become a reality. But at the end of the day, I focus on what I can control. I focus on, hey, focus on the, your posture, Eli. Don't focus on the outcome. Continue to try and be a man of honor, integrity, and 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 more importantly, be a guy that's willing to say, okay, I I may not have all the experience in the world. I may not even be the best candidate, but this country's in massive trouble. It's in massive trouble. And I'm willing to go serve again. And if you all don't want to send me, I'm cool with that. If I'm not, if not, if I'm not a good enough candidate, I'm cool with that. What I'm not cool with is sitting on my couch complaining about it and yelling at my TV. And I'm not going to be okay. I like to... I don't know if you do this, Jaco, but I like to think about sometimes, you know, from a legacy building perspective, like I like to think about my funeral, like who's going to show up, who's not going to show up. What's my, what are people going to say about me when, when I'm gone? Are they even going to be talk? Are they even going to, are they even going to talk about me or, or, or bring up my name? And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that at the end of my life, people show up to my funeral and be like, you know what, Eli did some, you know. Eli was a good dude and he loved, he loved people and he wasn't willing or he was, he was willing to sacrifice and serve something bigger than himself. And if, if, if that's what people say about me when I'm dead and gone and six feet under, then to me, I've lived a purpose driven life, something that I can be proud of. And to me, that's, that's what this is all about. It's like you and I swore an oath to, protect and defend this country from foreign and domestic threats and right now i don't i don't know how you see it i I believe we have some very dangerous foreign threats out there but i think the biggest threats in this country right now are within and the fact that we can't we can't unite and we can't we we have a lot of forces working against us who i don't believe actually want to see a free and prosperous people that still um have the power where our government is of for and by the people but there's a dichotomy to that we have we're so free and so prosperous here that many of us have become complacent 
we've checked out. We don't think that we have to participate. And you can't have both. You can't have a, a government and a country that's a foreign by the people and have a complacent people that have checked out and don't participate. And I think that's one of the reasons we're in the spot that we're in because people don't want to deal with the negativity that goes along with politics. They don't want to deal with the nastiness. I totally get it. But that's one of the reasons we're in such a bad spot because we just think that we can elect these these individuals who look good and they sound good. They put on the suit with the little flag on the on the collar. Tell us what we want to hear. And then we leave it up to them. And then when they let us down, you know, we're like, Oh, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. No, there is something we can do. We can get in we can get involved and we and we can fight for it. And that's what it's going to take, honestly. Was there any issues that was there like a straw that broke the camel's back where you said I I I or I got to go. I got to do this. Yeah. There was and it was this last election in, in 2020. Uh, for so for so many different reasons, it was it was part the election. What I what I saw happen in the election, but then it was also watching people that I thought were actually eyes wide open, willing to fight for us. Do this number, they look left, they look right. Oh, I guess nobody else is saying anything. I'm just gonna get back in line and you know do you know do do my thing and make sure that I don't put myself out there. Um, and jeopardize my future political career. And so um, it, that, that, was the, that was the big one for me because I, I believe that there was massive fraud in this last election for a, bunch of different, for a bunch of different reasons. At the end of the day, if we have a government that's of, by, and for the people, and yet our elections aren't tight and we're not electing, we're no longer electing our officials, um, we're in massive, massive, massive trouble. And the the clock then starts ticking on how long, in my opinion, we actually last. And so I've said this before, I'll say it again, I would rather we not, I would rather my guy lose or whoever I'm voting for lose than, um, you know, have to even question, hey, how legit was, how how legit was that? Because that didn't look right over there. And that didn't look right. And what about this over here? Oh, we're not allowed to talk about this or we'll get kicked off of social media too. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't smell right. How about how about if we how about if we have if if we we the people want to actually audit and check the results of our election? What's what does that look like? Is it is it is is it welcomed or is it or or do lawsuits start flying? You know, there's been some interesting stuff going on that are similar to what you're talking about. So, um, you know, Joe Rogan, who's, do I have to explain who Joe Rogan is? No, you don't. don't. Okay, so Joe, he, you know, had these these, um, doctors on to talk about COVID, and these these are doctors that have a non-mainstream media view about COVID, and he just released a statement yesterday, because now we have some of these old uh, rock and roll people telling Spotify, if you don't pull Joe Rogan off, then we don't want our music off, and and that's a legitimate thing. Um, so it's like, okay, so Rogan came out, it, he, he released like a nine minute podcast last night. Uh, I happened to be driving, and when it came out, so I listened to it. And 
So this is what's interesting. Uh, I, I forget the examples that he gave, but one of them was six months ago or a year ago or whatever, if you said cloth masks don't do anything, you would be literally banned, and there's documented people that were banned from social media for saying that. And now it's, oh, it turns out it's actually true, and, uh, and for example, CNN has been widely reporting that. There's a, a whole list of things like that. Oh, here's, here's the, uh, another example is, if you were to say six months ago or a year ago, once you're vaccinated, you can't catch COVID and you can't spread COVID. And if you would have said that, there's people that were banned yeah. from social media for saying those things, and now you look up and those things are actually true. They're factually true. That's right. what's happening. And you get this um, with, the, with the election results that you're talking about yeah. in, in 2020. There's, when people said, hey, I'm not sure about this election. Right. So, some people weren't necessarily saying, I mean, there was politicians, there was a very few politicians that were saying, hey, not so sure about this, maybe we should hold off, maybe we should check the results. There was personalities, social media personalities that were saying that, and they, they got shut completely shut down. Right. Not for saying, hey, I think we should overthrow the government, but for saying, hey, don't you think we should confirm this? Because I, I, I agree with you that, to me, the worst outcome for, a, for an American election is people look at it and go, I don't believe it. Right. Even if it's, a, even if it's never mind half the population, I don't want 10% of the population to think, hey, I don't believe this is true. I think that, that, I think that the, the election results were wrong. I think there was foul play, all those things. What I wanna do is if 10% of the people say, or 1% of the people say, hey, we think that there was foul play in the elections. I wanna say, okay, well, let's, let's get everything out on the table. You know, a good analogy would be if you're, watching, if you're playing a football game, yeah. and you know, a team, we think a team got a touchdown, and, and the other team says, yeah, that wasn't a touchdown. You don't say, well, shut up, it was, because now we all leave and we don't really think they, they won and we argue about it, we fight about it, and it's a bad thing. Instead, what do we do? What do we do nowadays when there's that problem? We solve the problem by going, oh, you don't think it was a touchdown? Cool, we're gonna go to the videotape, right. we're gonna lay everything out on the table, and then everyone can see, oh yeah, cross the plane, it was a touchdown, or didn't cross the plane, that's it. We can solve the argument so that we actually get the truth out there. And, and it seems like with this election, instead of saying, hey, here's what happened in these situations, here's these anomalies that took place, here's why they took place, here's the impact that they ha actually had, here's some characters that did some things that they shouldn't have done, here's some things that, some accusations were made that were totally false. Right. But but to just say, oh, if you don't think that that election was perfect, right. then you 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 should be silenced. And and the reason I bring up the 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 masks and the vaccines is because right now it seems like there are some people that are gathering evidence about the election that might not necessarily. 
turn the election over, but they might at least say, hey, this is something that happened. This, no one, no one agrees that this should happen. No one agrees that someone should be stuffing ballot boxes, right? No, no, one, no one thinks you should be stuffing ballot boxes. Right. So if ballot boxes are getting stuffed, what can we do to prevent that? And to me, I, I can't imagine a, a, an American that's aligned with America. <laughs> like with just the, the broad idea of America right. where we have freedom of speech, where we have the right to bear arms, the, the bro- we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I can't imagine someone saying, ah, you know what, I actually think stuffing ballot boxes is okay. I actually think, think these these changing these election laws is I, I think that's fine as long as you know it's done for the right party I, that that to me doesn't make sense right so I, I think when you start talking about the thing that kind of pushed you over the edge I think there's a lot of people that felt that way yeah and honestly it, there's a long there's a long list of things that I've been watching for years but um, you know I like for instance, you, you look at the su- look at the southern border, right? We're getting ready right now to possibly, you know, go send troops over to Ukraine on the eastern their eastern border, um, and yet we don't even take care of our own border, right? We have fentanyl and drugs coming over that southern border. We have human trafficking coming over that southern border. Um, you know, we have we're we're basically in, you know, supporting the cartels by doing that. We have MS-13 gang members coming over that southern border, and you have an administration right now that doesn't even want to address that problem at all. They're actually taking people in the dead of night sometimes and flying them around the country, right? You had a situation where Border Patrol agents were being fired because they wouldn't take a vaccination, yet people that were coming here illegally weren't forced to take a vaccination and then flown all over the country in the dead of night so that you and I um, wouldn't wouldn't know about it, wouldn't see about it, et cetera. And th- those are facts as well. And so that's just one that's just one more issue. How about our how about our debt situation? We've got like close to thirty trillion dollars in debt, right? Um, right now you have Nancy Pelosi um, and others pushing spending bills that are going to continue to rack up that debt. And we don't even have the money to pay for it. We're just printing money. And basically, um, we're devaluing the U.S. dollar and we're causing inflation to skyrocket. And you have Democrats like the guy I'm running against, a guy named Tom O'Halloran, who will try and convince you that inflation, you know, it's it, it's not that bad or it's, you know, I've even heard in the in the media they'll say, well, Jen Psaki said, well, you know, it's a you know, it's an it's it's an upper class problem, you know. And it's like um people that are putting gasoline in their cars, people that are buying, you know, hamburger meat or um, you know, any of the any of the consumer products that we buy, those prices are going up and up and up and it affects everybody. And this idea that we can just print our way out of this mess that we've gotten ourselves in because we don't have any fiscal responsibility, and we have politicians that want to um, support a you know a spending bill so that they can go back to their constituents and say, oh well, hey, look, I just got you guys, you know, great broadband, you know, Wi-Fi or what whatever it is, but knowing deep down that there were, you know. A thousand other things in that bill that wasn't good for the country, but now they can come back and hold this trophy up and be like, look what I did for you guys. You know, all across the board, how about energy? 
un, you know, we went from actually having so much energy that we were exporting energy. We shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, and now we and we greenlit the Russian pipeline at the same time, right? So how's that good for America? We're talking about defunding police officers. Are you are you what? What 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 universe are we living in, right? Where that's a good idea, you know. And I like Jocko what you've been talking about. Hey, how about we get get some of these you know police officers some better training, right? I, I think that's great, but defunding them ain't gonna help anything. It's gonna it's gonna hurt people, and it's gonna hurt peop, lower class people and minorities more than anybody else. So we've got this country has gone so. In my opinion, it's gone so far backwards in so many different in so many different ways that I look around, and one of my favorite sayings of all time is "evil triumphs when good men do nothing." And so again, it's just like I'll tell you what: if there was, you know, if if you were running in my district, I wouldn't be running in this district, <laughs> bro. I wouldn't. And matter of fact, I'm going to put you on the spot right now, I because I know I'm not the only one that has asked you, Gavin Newsom. There aren't too many guys that could take him out. You could take him out, dude. And I know you're building your empire, but I want to put that on your brain, bro, because you could take him out. I know you could. Yeah. Um, there aren't. Think about like, think about the platform that you have. Think about your your reputation in the SEAL teams. Think about what what you've done as an entrepreneur, and it, at the same time, you've managed to keep your family intact, bro. That's that's big time. I don't know another I don't know another human being that has that all under one roof, man. And so I know you got stuff to do. I know you're working on stuff, but you could take him out. You could. <sighs> Evil triumphs when good men do nothing, man. And I and I hate to even I hate to even put you on the spot because nobody's done nobody deserves to like enjoy the american dream more than you have just with everything you've done but this is an inflection point in this country and that's why echo that's why you see seven navy seals running right now because mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like hey it wasn't like we got on a conference call like hey you know it'd be cute is if we all ran for congress no no everybody they all realized it i know you i know you feel it as well but you know how badass would that be to have jocko you know the governor of California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and look, I, I appreciate you, um, your input on that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I really don't want to go into politics. That being said, I you know what's interesting is you know I talk to all my friends that live in Texas and they live in Utah and they live in Montana and they live in Arizona yep. and you know there's just been a rash of people leaving California. Yep. Uh, businesses leaving California my friends a bunch of my friends have left California and I love California California is freaking awesome it is California has the Pacific Ocean it has the mountains it has the desert it has the redwood trees it has Yosemite it is a magnificent place it is absolutely magnificent and yeah it is in a very precarious situation right now that I don't think it can I don't think it I don't think it can continue to go this way I mean you, you've seen the news you've seen the 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 homeless situations yeah you see the the trains that were getting attacked and 
you know, robbed from yeah. entire freight trains. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, man. I don't know what's going to happen in California. I, I love California. California is an iconic place. And there's and the other thing you got to remember about California is California is not San Francisco and Los Angeles. That's not California. Right. That's a small part of California. California is the Imperial Valley, right? California is the agriculture that is the vast majority of this state and hardworking Americans that are out there busting their ass to make things work. And at the same time, paying an incredible amount of taxes and having a regulatory environment that's that's hostile to business, legitimately hostile. Right. So with all these things, as they continue to add up, um, I can't predict the future. I certainly hope I don't have to get into politics. I, I, I really just don't know if I have the stomach for it. Um, I don't want to do it, man. And, and I know. It's like just the biggest cop out that I can throw back at you at this point. And, and you and the rest of the guys that are out there trying to do it for the right reasons is awesome. Um, man, I don't, I don't want to get into that business. I don't want to get into that world. And, uh, you know, I, when people ask me about politics, I always tell them that, you know, I'm not, I don't want to do it unless things get really bad. People hit me up all the time. Is it bad enough yet? Is it bad enough yet? Is it bad enough yet? I don't know where that line is for me. Uh, I feel a dumb and dumber moment coming on right now where I just want to say, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> there's a chance. Okay. One in a million. Awesome. Uh, don't like it. Um, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. It's, an, it's nasty, man. It's a nasty world and it's, God, dude. And I, I'm barely even scratching the surface of it. But even now, like, I, I don't really like the world. I don't like the self-promotion of going around campaigning and telling people why you're so great and why they should vote for you. I don't like that part of it. I don't like the nastiness of, you know, people lying, lying about you and trying to smear you and, you know, every single way possible. And if they can't come up with anything good, they'll just make it up. I don't like that part of it. I don't like exposing my family, you know, to this stuff as well. I just want my kids to grow up kind of like a normal life. And, but I'll tell you what, man, it's like, if, if enough of us don't do it, we're done. Yeah, That's the way I see it, man. And I wish I was more optimistic, but I watched like, just like on a, uh, you know, a dope sheet as a sniper, man, I watch trajectories. I watch where this country started and where we're at now, man. And it's, I mean, COVID, if, if that doesn't wake people up, you know, to, uh, you know, the fact that often, most often governments aren't typically interested in letting the power rest with the people. I don't know what's going to wake people up, but it, it's, it's getting bad and we need to, we need some, uh, sled dogs to put their, uh, and maybe a couple leaders to put their, uh, their shoulder to the wheel, but just saying. Am I the only one that's ever called him out? On? I don't think so, no. <laughs> okay, I, I, I will say when I speak, maybe not necessarily on the podcast because it's a small group of two or maybe three. Yeah, sure. yeah, whenever I go and talk to businesses, companies, organizations, I, I'm getting called out almost 100% of the time Good to get in the game, to get in that game. You know, And, and, and right now, I mean, uh, part of my cop-out, part of my uh, uh, rationalization is 
you know, I'm trying to build businesses in America, American-made business. We're bringing manufacturing. We're putting people back to work. We got hundreds of employees, American employees that are that are making things happen. We're we're bringing back manufacturing. That's that that's it, it is a part it's a, it is a part of the fight it's a very important part of the fight and honestly that's why i'm an america first candidate not because i not because i hate you know any any other country around the world but i love this country and for so long so many of our leaders and politicians have put america on the back burner and they've sold out so many you know of our workers our constituents and it's just like hey you know i'm all for i'm all for you know free trade, but it needs to be fair. And we need to make sure that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot and shooting, you know, you know, um, displacing our workforce and taking manufacturing away from many of these folks and families that, you know, count on it. And uh, that was one of the coolest things about Bottle Breacher is that I couldn't have even done it this long. I couldn't have even run that business this long if I didn't find a way to incorporate mission into it. Okay. How do we, how, how is this bigger than just profits and balance sheets and okay. So we can support some cool veteran nonprofits. We can hire some vets. We can make our products in the USA. Okay, that's enough of a mission to keep me, you know, engaged, you know, for a certain amount of time. But you know, and I, I love that you're doing that as well, man. Um, it's it seems like it's getting hard to keep up with all the stuff you're doing. Well, you you took on a bigger challenge, man. Yeah. You took on a bigger challenge. Uh, so, how can everyone help out? How can we help get you elected? What do we got to do? Yeah, right. um, so I, I appreciate it, man. And I just appreciate the opportunity to come and rap with you guys. Um, if people want to go uh, follow me, they can uh, look up Eli, Eli Crane underscore CEO on social media. If you want to go to my website, it's EliForArizona.com. Um, you know, I, I hate to even ask, but unfortunately in this world, so much of this boils down to name ID and for a first time guy, in, in a political race, uh, U.S. Congress race, so much of it is going to come down to do we have the ammo and the resources to run all the TV ads, all the digital ads, all the mailer ads, etc. So if you guys can give us a small donation, we would really appreciate it. I'm asking people for prayer as well, um, you know, just for guidance, direction and wisdom. And the other thing I'm asking for is that people share, um, you know, share uh, the website, share what we're doing here so that other people that don't know about it can pitch in and help too. So those are the things that you guys can do. Sounds like a plan, man. Um, probably a good place to wrap it up. Echo, yes. what do you got? You got any questions? Yes. Oh, we got football questions. What do we Fred, got? I, I, I don't want to keep us here too much. Actually, no, I just actually want to say, so when I when I, when we saw the Shark Tank episode, yeah. you know how like, because you guys watched that even before you were on, yeah. you know the kind where someone comes out with a product or service and you immediately, and it depends on who you are, obviously, right. and you immediately know like, oh, this guy's going to get a deal. Yep. That's what I felt about yours. Because Brad, he better, you don't watch Shark Tank. I've watched it. I mean, I, I watched your episodes over yeah. the past like a uh, few days when I knew you were coming out here. But no, I, I'm not a regular watcher. Bro, I'm like like a bunch of other people. The moment I saw that thing, yep. as a, I was like, did you know anything about? Did you know Eli before that? No, no, I didn't. This was back in the day. This is like in 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but bro, once I saw that thing, I was like, bro, that's the coolest shit I ever seen. Yeah, you're that guy, bro. Oh, yeah. You're that guy oh, that yeah. he was talking about. Yes, no, dude, yeah. it was. It, it, I mean, it was so. It was so cool and such a blessing, man. And uh, I mean, it's still. I tell people all the time, you know, um, 
You know, guys don't really grow up. We just get bigger toys. Yeah. Can I tell Can I tell the Salda Franco story? Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So it's so funny, man. You know, Jocko is who Jocko is, man. And, you know, you got, got people that want to be like Jocko, right? <laughs> and it just so happened that a lot of uh, people, you know, in, in task unit two wanted to be like Jocko. So they made us do – the older guys made the younger guys do skits. And that's a pretty dicey situation, man, because By the way, I know I know where Sal lives right now. Yeah. I know where he's at. So I might have to go get him. Sal, he's coming, bro. No, um it, he wasn't even making fun of you. It, really, it was just he was making fun of people that wanted to be like you. And so it was funny. So they they make you do these skits and if you piss them off, you know, you deal with you deal with that side of it. But if you make them if you can make them laugh, while making fun of them, that's that's the, the the golden ticket, right? So, Sal was always the funniest dude. So Sal came up with a lot, a lot of our skits, and so um, I remember he did this skit, and it was like he was playing you, and uh, or no, he was playing. I think he's playing Stoner, uh-huh. and he had this he had this note like this note this binder, and he put like uh, what was it. WWJD, what would Jocko do? And he like walks out playing Stoner, talking like Stoner. He's like, you know, all the acronyms, BTF, Charlie Mike, you know, and the guys are just rolling because he's, you know, he's like, you know, making fun of all these guys who want to be like Jocko, but are failing miserably. And it was just, it was just so funny, dude. And so, you know, that, that became, you know, a joke, you know, a running joke after you left, like, God, dude, all these guys walking around, what would Jocko do? Trying to be like, bro, you're not Jocko. Just be yourself, man, okay? Just be yourself. Uh, yeah. Big, tough frog man, you know, two, over 200 pounds, all, all this stuff, dude. Hey, what's Charlie Mike? Continue mission. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's just another. Right. And, it, and, it, and it's an unofficial thing, meaning uh, our status is this time is that we are going to Charlie Mike. I mean, it's oh. an official thing. Like we are actually continuing the mission, but that turns into just like a, Hey, just Charlie Mike, bro. Right, like right. you just gotta just keep going. BTF not official. BTF is unofficial. unofficial. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. BTF cool. is unofficial. Similar meaning except for BTF has, you know, greater capabilities because it can be used for a lot more things than just yes, continue mission. I understand. So, you know, um, that's all good. That's yeah. all good. Right uh, Eli, yeah. Any closing thoughts? Thank you, man. Thank you for you know what you're doing, and uh, thank you for allowing a guy like me, you know, to come on this show. Like I've listened to this show for you know years, and I understand why you 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 try and keep politics out of it because you know I mean it, it's such a divisive thing. But I just appreciate you taking a risk and bring it, allowing a guy like me to come on and you know talk about a little even my faith, man. That's something that is, can be really divisive to people, and I definitely don't want it to be a divisive to people, and I definitely don't want to disrespect what you've built, but I'm grateful that you allowed me to come on and talk about it because at the end, bro, I do not want to be – I never wanted to be in Congress. I don't like wearing suits. I don't want to live in Washington, D.C., but I honestly believe if we don't get if we don't get some men and women with courage and character that never wanted this job in the first place in key positions – I'm very concerned about what the future for my kids is going to look like. So thank you, man, for using what you've built to help guys like me. Yeah. Well, uh, again, um, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for jobbing the teams, man. Yeah. That, that, that counts, bro. Like getting after it, getting out there, doing that job, holding the line in the teams. Thank you for doing that. Um, and for what you did with what you did and what you continue to do with Bottle Breacher, 
Like that's building the American economy. That's made in America. That's yeah. freaking outstanding. That's providing jobs for people. That's that's awesome. And and what you're doing right now, going into politics. Look, I don't like politics. I, I know you don't like politics. And you know, I'm I'm not like intentionally steering away from politics on this podcast. It's just not the thing that I talk about normally. Yeah. I mean, and I've had I know other political people on here. I'll continue to have them. I've had people from both sides. I've had Democrats. I've had Republicans on here. People that have run for Democratic positions. People that have run for Republican positions. People, and you know, talking about your faith, like uh, that's that's a why. I mean, I've that's wide open. You know, you can't cover books about the military and not have faith in intertwined in those things from people that have have been to the edge and back. Uh, but for me, you know, what I like, what I want, and what I hope is that when people listen to what we talk about here, they actually listen to it. Actually listen to what people are saying. Yeah. And instead of trying to figure out where I don't like you or where I don't agree with you, I try and figure out where I agree with you, where you have a common goal that, that I have and you want to see America move in the same direction that I want to see it. And maybe we have some different ideas about how to get there. Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. You know, in a platoon, you ask a pl- you ask you ask every single guy in a platoon to come up with a plan for a mission. They're all going to come up with a different way, and they're all probably going to think their way is the best way. But guess what? We're all trying to do the same thing, and that's what we need to do in this country: is look at where we're trying to go, get on board, support each other, and let's move in that direction. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And Eli is on his way back to Arizona. And before he left, Echo Charles, man, yes, sir. you normally aren't quite as hyped to get a picture with someone <laughs> as you were with Eli. Because yep. as far as you're concerned, uh, Shark Tank is, he's, he's, a, he's a movie star for you well, or something. You know, you didn't uh, know him at all when you watched him on it. You would just happen to watch that live. Like whenever it came out in 2000. 14 yeah. you were watching it yeah so i have seen i do watch shark tank mm-hmm. you know, i've seen every single episode really yeah yes how many seasons have there been i don't know one million i don't know okay but it's like that you're like just like how eli is like where i don't really watch tv but there is one show that mm-hmm. me and my that's wife literally the one do. show that you like there's two well wi-fi always does not come on anymore so yeah that's, okay, yeah, we're down to one show. Yeah. Um, there's some other ones that are, like, cool. I'll catch it if it's, like, the tail end of the night and then whatever. But um, the one that we do watch together mm-hmm. every episode, Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. And that was one of them. No, I didn't know him. But he was like, you know, I'm, I'm a veteran, you know, former Navy SEAL and stuff. So I figure, okay, we must know, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the same people and just in general. But the thing that really was, like, I was down for the cause is when he showed that thing, man. The freaking 50 caliber 50 bottle caliber opener? Bro, bro, come bro, on, bro. I mean, not, you know, was it the cure for cancer? No. But it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Ever? In terms of bottle openers. Debatably, yeah. It was really cool. Right. And when, you know, after a while you can tell, like, okay, the, the product alone is such a good idea that he, of course, he's going to get a deal. It was like that thought. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I thought, oh, yeah, he's going to get a deal. And he got a double. Yeah, he got a double deal. Two sharks, that's a big deal. Actually, three sharks bid because one other shark said, I'll do a deal right now. 
And then Eli said, hey, just out of respect for the other sharks, yep. okay. I want to make sure that just does anyone else have anything to offer? And then the other shark stepped in and made an offer. And then the, the other shark, the, <laughs> I don't know all the sharks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another little uh, detail. And that's fine. That's interesting because I do remember him saying that, but I totally forgot that he was the one who said that, which, okay, so a lot. What of, was good was how he framed it. I remember yeah. that part. I fr- he framed it as not as like, and actually they made fun of him a little bit because he said, he said, he said, out of respect for the other sharks, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that none of you would like to make an offer as well. Mm-hmm. When what he was really saying was, hey, listen, does anybody else want to throw in more <laughs> yeah, of that? Exactly. And the, one of the female sharks mm-hmm. said, oh, out of respect for us. Like, like she yeah. kind of called him on it. But yeah. but he did it, it right. Perfectly. He did it right. Perfectly. And, and so good job, Eli. Usually how they say it is kind of like, well, it wouldn't be smart for me as a businessman to, you know, oh. just like take an offer, the first offer. So they, they'll frame it something like that. Yeah. Like, hey, out of out of like my own or right, our right, business's right. interest. It's about but me. Yeah. When he said out of respect for the other, that's undeniable right yeah, yeah. there. Because this is what the sharks will do sometimes. Cuban will do this. He'll be like. Um, do they have be, their own little methodologies that they use? Yeah. What's Cuban do? He'll go, if he really wants it, he'll bully the other sharks. So he'll be like this. He'll go, hey, I'm offering you this, 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 but you got to take it right now. Uh, like you start, and I don't want to hear them. If you start taking there, and he'll he'll totally do it too. He'll be like, well, you know, I, I should think I should hear an offer from. And if the one of the other sharks start, starts talking, like, hey, I'll offer you this, Cuban will be like, I'm out. So they miss it, Dang. and now he has kind of a little bit of a reputation for doing that kind of stuff sometimes. So now people get really oh, and they jump at it, you know. Yeah. But if you frame it like, hey, out of respect for the other sharks. Yeah. He would have to paint himself as a bad guy now yep. for him to really follow through. Yep. That was good. I would, and he seemed so respectable. Who? Eli? Eli, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he did good. It was cool to have him on here, man. But definitely cool. And even though he's trying to get me to run for freaking governor of California and stuff. <laughs> I'd have to do a bunch of campaign videos. Oh, yeah. Oh, you'd man. have to be a campaign video guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you might even have to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really hope it doesn't come to that, man. But but I give it up for these guys that are out there doing this. Because, I, I, look, I can, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I, I wouldn't like to do that. But you know they're lying. Yeah. You know, they're like, I, 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 I don't want to have to run for this position, yeah, but I'm yeah. feeling the need that my country's calling me, and yeah. you know that they're not telling the truth. Yeah. Like, you can tell, Eli's like, hey, I, I don't want to do this. You can tell Eli, like, literally does not want to do this. <laughs> no, no choice. But no choice. at the same time, you can see the passion, and he knows that we need help. Mm-hmm. And he's right. He's right, man. He's right. Good on him. He came at me with the direct approach, which is normally not your recommended approach, but mm-hmm. it kind of made me think, man, uh, I'm weak over here. Well, yeah, and even if you don't, and this is all uh, in a big picture kind of way, this is all just the natural course of things where like if things get too extreme and everyone started recognizing, wait a second, this is too extreme, it's gonna start tipping the other way. And yeah. usually when it tips the other way, just like a swing, right? Yeah, it, it's gonna, yeah. It's gonna tip maybe a little, a little bit yeah. more, yeah. you know? And hopefully it'll settle, hopefully at some point. I. And I I'm keep waiting for California to start swinging back. And it is, you are starting to see indications, right? There was a female uh, mayor up in San Francisco that she just came out and was like, all right, we're, we're, we're crushing 
crime, we're funding the police. And she was, this is in San Francisco. Yeah. This is like a liberal mayor of San Francisco. She started swinging it back the other way. Yeah. So that's the one of the early indications of what's going down. Exactly. I mean, you see the politicians out here just mandate. They did a mandate right now. It's, what date is it today? I don't know, but like they got, they put another mask mandate on, indoor mask mandate. Mm-hmm. I mean, meanwhile, other parts of the country are wide open yeah. for months. Yeah, even the Denver guy, same deal. Yeah, and a, a wide open. England is England's just saying we're done. We're done with COVID. Yeah. Hey, more people are going to get it. We know that. Uh, I think Sweden or some somewhere else. There's there's places that are just going wide open. Yeah. And Florida's been wide open. And Texas. Man, I was in Texas for a couple of years ago. Mm. <laughs> maybe it was a couple. Maybe it was like a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah. I did a jujitsu seminar. Mm. Or like a meet and greet mm. at jujitsu, there was two hundred people there rolling jujitsu. Mm. Meanwhile, California was in lockdown. By the mm. way, so that that's okay. So for people are making decisions. But here's the here's you know I just saw a picture of the Newsom who he was just talking about at a football game with a bunch of other politicians, none of them wearing masks as they have mandated for everyone else. Yeah. You see. You can't get away with that forever. No. You can't. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And that's why the pendulum is going to start to swing back. I, that's what's going to happen. I yeah. hope I don't have to ride that pendulum to the other side. Yeah. Because yeah. I really don't want to. I want to yeah. surf. I want to yeah. do jujitsu. I want to make the podcast. I want to build the companies that we're building. So and And if we can do that properly, maybe we don't have to get into this whole freaking political thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's like you know if you're in a bus, we'll say, or van. Say we're in a bus. I, you know what I feel? You know the break in case of war, break glass. Yeah, I feel like that's my political. That's career. your <laughs> and 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 I joke yeah. about it, but like yeah. I think it's got to be. Yeah, I'm talking chaos. Emergent I'm talking. I'm talking. Scenario. I'm talking total mayhem and chaos. And I don't really think I would be a. No, I don't, I think it's. I think I would become a political leader in an environment when things are no longer the way they were. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I yeah. think I'm I think I'm more stepping up to a a, a really hostile situation. Yeah. That's where I'd get, that's where I'd roll in hot. Yeah. And and a lot of times too we have to remind ourselves that or remind ourselves of the question of is it really hostile or is it just hostile like on the internet yeah, or yeah, on the that's TV true. or whatever? That's true. And I'm not just saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying that's always a good reminder. And I will know. tell you that there are elements that are hostile in mm-hmm. real life. There's definitely elements that are hostile. And that whole thing with Joe, with Joe Rogan was just crazy right now, you know? And and the, the points that he was making in this little nine-minute episode that he did, mm-hmm. I mean, people got banned from Twitter for saying masks don't work. Yeah. And by the way, there was people out there wearing three and four masks. When I was traveling, I'd go to the airport, there'd be people with two masks on and a face shield, right? Yeah. And okay, cool. Hey, cool. Go go do that. But some people were saying, hey, this still, how does this work? And you know, the uh, people like, dude, it's a piece of cloth over my face. How's that stopping anything? And that was just a kind of a common sense approach. Okay, well, you're banned from, you're banned from talking. <laughs> Even if you're like, it doesn't seem like this does a lot. Or you're banned from talking. Yeah. So now, now you talk about those election things, and it's like, hey, well, it doesn't. It seems like these states that were like swing states, there was the voting stop, and in in the only four like swing states that mattered, the voting stopped counting at midnight. Does, does that seem weird? Yeah. 
Oh, you're banned. You can, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah. What the right answer should be, hey, that's a good question. Let's do some analytics and figure out what happened. Yeah. So, and there's, I, I, I do know that there's some other information that's coming out right now that is definitely, let me rephrase that. There's information coming out about the 2020 election that indicates that maybe things should be looked at a little bit more. So, uh, and again, if it's wrong and it turns out that the election was squared away, then cool, you go, okay, cool. Now yeah. you all can stop worrying about it. All you freaking crazy right-wing fringe Trump maniacs can calm down now because, look, here's the facts. Mm -hmm. But instead, what they're saying is like, hey, shut up. Right. You're a conspiracy theorist. What does it do? What, what do you do? When you suppress that information, what does it do to those people? It, embold it doesn't embolden them. Yeah. It makes them even more suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a good move. When you won't show the NFL team the video, they just go, see, they don't even yeah, want to show us yeah. the video. That's mm -hmm. a bad move. Yeah. Air these things out. Man, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? Hey, we got we got some we gotta fix our elections a little bit. That's that seems legitimate to me. I wanna have everybody's vote count. Okay, cool. Don't you? Or do you not? Because if you do not, then we have a we have a serious problem with our alignment between us two as human beings. Mm -hmm. I'm American. I think we vote for our people, and that's who gets put into office. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that? <laughs> you know. And if you don't think that, we have a serious problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't. I think most Americans, the vast, vast, vast majority, are like, yeah, of yeah, whoever gets voted, that's who should be in office. Cool, yeah. we agree on that. We can agree on that. Should the voting be done in a method where it's kind of standardized and makes sense and it's hard to cheat? Wouldn't that make sense? Yeah, that would make sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, that instant replay analogy was pretty much spot on there. Because mm. it, it does like, you know, in football, as the example, mm -hmm. the, if you know, usually it's yeah, it's like a touchdown or an out of bounds scenario or whatever, right? Where the line in matters, critical, right? In a critical moment. Yeah, yeah, actually, actually, technically, it's never in. It doesn't have to be in a critical moment. It can be the first play of the game. The problem is though, you only get so many of those calls. You can only go to the videotape a certain number of times, and you might not want to waste it if it's like, you know, if you've first and two. Yeah, if you whatever. Wanna, I think that's challenging the ref. Oh yeah, 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 challenging mm -hmm. the refs call. Mm -hmm. That's that's true. So either way, if the reason that exists is because we do, no matter what team you're you're cheering for, San Francisco 49ers or the Denver Broncos, whoever, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, whoever you're cheering for, you do want to know the truth. Yep. Like no one wants, like if someone didn't make a touchdown, it's pretty, pretty hard pressed to be like, ah, nah, we should just give him the touchdown even though he didn't make the touchdown. Like that doesn't make much sense. Yeah, and it especially doesn't make sense. Even if you're like, well, you know, my team kind of won, so I just want to let it slide. Yeah. The problem with that attitude, which is understandable, you know, I'm a f raging freaking Denver Broncos fan and it looked like a touchdown. We think it was a touchdown. We just need to let it slide this time. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. You've just now said in, place a precedent where we're not gonna review things right. that's what we're okay so now we're just going with whatever that ref saw that was at a weird angle and he called it a touchdown so we're good and we're just gonna go with that from now on that's not mm -hmm. the precedent you want to set set yeah. you want to set a precedent of like okay we have a way of assessing whether this was actually a touchdown or not 
And that's what we're going to utilize. So you might say, you know what? I really want the Broncos to win, and it kind of looked like a touchdown. But the right thing to do for future reference and for future precedence is to say, let's go to the videotape and confirm. But the politicians that said that, and a lot of it was tied to the fact that the January 6th event happened. Mm-hmm. And that made people just go, Shh, I don't want to I don't want to catch any flack for what's going on. This is getting crazy. Uh, let's just move forward and and call it what it is. Looks like they won. Don't go to the videotape. Yeah. When the videotape will make people say, yeah, you know what? The, the team won. <laughs> or or they say, oh, the team didn't win. And now we got some serious issues that we need to attend to. It's very strange times, man. It's a very strange time. What's weird, here's what's weird about this, is me saying what I just said, it seems like pretty normal. It seems pretty logical. Like, well, shouldn't you go to the videotape? No one's gonna listen to that and say no. They're gonna say, yeah, if you if that's the rule and you have the data, then why wouldn't you check it? But you you transfer that exact analogy, analogy to a, the 2020 election, and all of a sudden, whoever says, hey, maybe we should review the information and the data is a savage, yeah. you know, uh, insurrectionist, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, it's like, no, I'm not an insurrectionist at all. Yeah. What I want to do is review the data. So if someone says that, they get even worse uh, accusations. Yeah. So it's very strange times. So do you, and you mentioned something just a second ago about how in the NFL, you only get a few chances to challenge the call. I right? think I'm right? not yeah. a freaking no, no, NFL expert. I, I, I'm, and it's been myself. a while, really, yeah. since I've, you know, so that rule could be changed. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but nonetheless, that was a rule at some point. Yeah, and that's for a reason because if there's no limit to them, let me yeah. challenge every single yeah. call and jam up this whole system, yeah. this whole game. This whole game is 12 hours long now because I'm challenging every call that goes against me. Yeah. Right, so. Isn't that part of the game too? Where yeah, but it's what's like, interesting about like the election was yeah. people were like, well, we don't want to investigate everything. We just want to make sure that these key areas yeah. that had voting anomalies that are documented, yeah. maybe we should check those out. Shut up. Hey, no. Right. So <laughs> it's, like, it, bro. it's almost like a tactic where you could, if you're on the other side, right, you could be like, hey, you're just trying to stop. You're just, what do you call it? You can't let it go. What were they saying? They were saying like, um, you can't just accept the truth. It's like that, you know. Yeah, you want to yeah, paint yeah. them yeah, yeah, as yeah, a yeah. as yeah, an yeah. unlimited, uh, yeah. you know, challenging the call yeah. guy. You know. Well, what makes this really scary? What makes it all that really scary? Is because I haven't dove enough into the details. But what makes it really scary is that what just what Joe Rogan just talked about, which is, hey, people were getting banned from social media for saying masks didn't work, and now it's the reality. People were getting banned from social media for saying the vaccine. You could still spread COVID even if you had a vaccine. And that is actually true. And by the way, people were getting banned for saying you could still catch COVID. Guess what? That's true. So all these things, we didn't have an open conversation about them because one side got completely shut down, which is crazy. So there you go. Can't have an open conversation. That's disturbing when you can't have an open conversation. And, And when what you have to watch out for is people that whatever methodology they want to use, raise their voice and yell over you. So whether that means, I'm not talking, so could that be, if you and I are in a a discussion 
and you start going, I don't care about that. And you start raising your voice and yelling and talking over me. Okay, but that's just you and me. I realize you're just mad, whatever, but I didn't get my point across, but you don't care because you leave. <laughs> sure. yeah. that, that behavior in social media, that behavior in the news, that behavior in mainstream media where, oh, Echo's saying something I don't like, so I'm gonna attack him Raise my voice, but through whatever means that might mean, you know, retweeting you with hey, calling you this or calling you that or doing a personal attack. All the, that behavior. Now we're not discussing the topic. Yeah. We're discussing that I hate you. Yep. <laughs> Which is bad. Uh, you, ever, you ever watch the movie uh, The Time Machine? You ever heard of it? I know you didn't watch it, but <laughs> okay. So The Time Machine is um, okay. Guy Pierce who's also the star of Memento, by the way. Anyway, Guy Pierce, boom, he makes a time machine, he goes way in the future. Mm-hmm. And you know, he finds that humans have split, mm-hmm. um, evolutionarily speaking. Mm-hmm. So they were actually split in three. But so one, so he goes with the villagers or whatever, and like he says something. Wait a second, this could have been Stargate. Nonetheless, <laughs> they say, he says something, and Can everyone- Can I take a time machine back to you before this story? <laughs> Everyone like turns their back or starts walking uh-huh. away or erases what he wrote in the stand or something like that. And so like somebody explains to him, hey, like you can't speak of that. You just can't speak mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And I think later on they find out like, you know, yeah. what's behind it and stuff yeah. like that. Same, and that's the thing. Same what's the, what some of these guys got to listen to what they say. And it isn't ironic that Neil Young's song, Keep on Rocking in the Free World. And he's like, don't talk anymore. <laughs> right? Like that's crazy, right? Oh boy, God. That's crazy. Yep, so, that is. That's why we have the underground, by the way. Yeah. We have the underground, jockounderground.com. Why do we have that? Why do we charge $8.18 a month to, to have our own little platform? That This is why. Because what we're talking about right now, this may get rolled, this may get bounced. Yeah. This may get edited, yeah. right? And we're not actually making a statement one way or the other. I'm just explaining things that have happened. Yeah. I, I haven't dug through the details enough. I don't spend my time digging through the details of current events. I don't do that. That's not, but you know why? Because I'm not that interested. And because other people that commit their time to it, I'm gonna let them, let these other people go do that. I'm gonna be reading about World War II, Vietnam, Korea, the Peloponnesian Wars. That's what I'm doing over on my side. I'm gonna be training jujitsu, hopefully going surfing, playing guitar. Those are the things that I'm doing. I'm not parsing through the news stories that came out in the last 48 hours to try and get you and right. catch you on something. Mm-hmm. But when you let a little time go by, and we talked about this on one of the underground, when you, you, so I let time go by and the truth starts to rise to the surface. Now it took six to eight months for the truth to rise to the surface on some of these stories. Mm-hmm. But again, you know how much sleep I lost over these stories? Mm. While they were happening, not very much. Mm-hmm. I wasn't freaking, I was like, ah, these masks don't work. Or I wasn't like, you better put on a mask. I didn't lose sleep over that. Mm. Cause I was like, hey, it doesn't seem like gonna work that good to me. Oh, you you know, I'm gonna carry on with my life. That's what I'm doing. Mm. So we don't know when we might get suppressed. Mm. So that's why we made jockounderground.com. If you wanna, you can help us out. If anything happens to these, any of these platforms that you listen to this on, we will still have that platform. We do an extra podcast on it f- uh, about once a week, and we talk about other things that maybe don't fit quite on Jocko Podcast, but we want to get them out there to y'all, so you can check that out. If you can't afford it, look, if you can't afford it, it's okay. We still got you. 
You can email, what is it? Assistance at jockounderground.com. We appreciate your support on that. Uh, you know, also we were talking about American made companies. You know, that's kind of my, that's, that's what, that's the way I am trying to help mm-hmm. America right now by building these companies with the origin team, originusa.com. If you need to get boots, if you need to get jeans, if you need to get a gi, which you probably do, then get, go to originusa.com. And by the way, you probably, you may have seen we have a hunting line coming out. So we, we're, we're gonna be making clothes for hunting. That's what we're doing. We've got all kinds of good clothes coming out as well. Workout clothes, by the way, Echo Charles. So yes. we're, we're gonna cover you down on that as well. <laughs> uh, OriginUSA.com. We also have JockoFuel.com. I'm barely, barely on my game today. Why? I didn't sleep last night. Probably got two hours, maybe two and a half. And I've had, this is my second Jocko Discipline Go, which is, a, which is a drink. It's a drink. Could you call it an energy drink? You could, because it does have energy in it. But when you hear energy drink, you're thinking, oh, oh you're going to ingest some poison that's going to get you uh, jittery and hyper for about an hour and a half, and then you're going to crash and be sick and be diabetic. Yep. We're not in that category. No. no sugar in here, sweetened with monk fruit, 95 milligrams of caffeine, mm-hmm. get you on that nice little... You're good to go. Good to go. You're good to go. People, good to go. people go. If you don't sleep, you don't. It's like no less than eight hours of sleep is like being a point zero eight DUI. You're you're mentally impaired. Yeah. Look, I'm not saying it's good for you, mm-hmm. but it's not as bad as you know. Look, should you uh, get sleep? Don't get me wrong. Get yeah. sleep. Mm-hmm. Sleep as much as you can. Sleep as much as you want. Well, okay. <laughs> don't get crazy. But but what I'm saying is. You're, if you sleep a little bit less and you need a little some hitter, mm-hmm. get yourself some Jocko Fuel, jockofuel.com. Yeah, That's and a I, good one. I will also contend that even if you got a lot of sleep, drink because it is good for you. Yeah, you know what I'm it's, it's healthy beautiful. for it's you. Beautiful. Look, hey, look, some people, hey, it, some people drink coffee, right? In the morning, good, mm-hmm. drink coffee, black coffee, whatever you, however mm-hmm. you drink coffee. If you get eight hours of sleep, what, should you not drink coffee? Not necessarily, because yeah, coffee's kind of good for hey, you. Drink some coffee, man. Mm-hmm. You like that one. You want that, uh, as you would say, hit or whatever. Mm-hmm. The reason, same deal. Mm-hmm. And it's healthy for you. Yep. So, boom, you'll be better off either way. Also, nootropics in there. Yep. Let's not ignore that. No. That's good for your brain. That That's, is nutrients Yep. for your brain. That's probably why you don't need to overload the caffeine with the go. Yeah. You don't need to because it's got the nootropics in there. Get you up there on step, rocking and rolling. Brad, there was a commercial, and I, 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 I remember the drink. I forget what it was called mm-hmm. because I used to get it. It's juice. Straight up juice. Like juice juice. Oh, like apple juice or yeah, something. Yeah, like like ju- but it was like a mix, I think. I forget what it was. But nonetheless, their thing was like feed your brain. Well, now as an adult, I'm looking at I'm <laughs> yeah. like, wait, feed your brain. Isn't there like 50 grams of sugar in that thing right there? <laughs> Savages. Yeah. Yep. That's JockoFuel.com. Don't forget about Jocko's store. We're making cool t-shirts. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. You want to represent because, hey, this path is not always easy. Yep. Yep. Good to go. But it is worth it. It is worth it. It's 100% worth it. And if you want to represent, boom, yep, you get your shirts, your hats. Go, the, the subscription shirts continue to Roll. dazzle the senses. Dazzle the senses. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got some good uh, ones The shirt out. locker. Yep, yep the, the shirt, shirt locker. locker. You get a cool new one every month. Um, I we got, a, we got some cool ones coming out. Look at that. They're always and cool coming the out. The anticipation is just overflowing so over there. Uh, subscribe. Subscribe to this podcast, the YouTube, the YouTube channel. 
psychological warfare. Flipside canvas, Dakota Meyer. You got to get cool stuff to hang on your wall occasionally. Yes, unless unless you want a bare wall, which is only applicable in a podcast in the Jocko Podcast Studio. But even though it's like conspicuously bare, yeah, my, my house, my home would be bare yeah. were it not for my wife because okay. she's hung some stuff on the walls. But that's not appropriate. You should hang stuff on your walls. Sure. Flipsidecanvas.com, Dakota Meyer, making awesome stuff. I've written a bunch of books. We got Echelon Front. Yeah, if you want, if you like what we're talking about here, get some of the books. Echelonfront.com, leadership consultancy. Extremeownership.com is our online training academy for leadership. You can check that out. Also, if you want to help service members, retired service members, active duty service members, gold star families, the families of service members. Check out Mark Lee's mom. She's got an awesome organization. Go to americasmightywarriors.org if you want to donate or get involved. You can also check out heroesandhorses.com. We got Micah Fink up there in the the woods, in the mountains of Montana, helping out vets. And if you want more of us, you can find us on social. And that's cool. We'll, we'll, We'll be there, but we don't want you in the algorithm. Keep out of the algorithm. Echoes at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Eli Crane for coming on. Uh, appreciate your service in the past and in the present. Eli for Arizona.com. Let's go help Eli win. And to the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines out there protecting our flag around the world. Thank you. Same goes to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thank you for protecting us here at home and to everyone else out there. Remember that you do get to write the script of your life, but you have to write around the things that don't go the way you want them to. But don't let that stop you. Instead, take ownership and counterattack those things that aren't going the way you want them to by going out every day and getting after it. And until next time, Zeko and Jocko.